Today's episode of This Life Ain't For Everybody podcast is brought to you by the Bone Collector North American Whitetail Championships. The championships is a first of its kind, and it was created for the everyday whitetail deer hunter. Broken up into 14 regions across America and Canada, you can qualify for the championships for your chance to win $50,000. It's only $300 per man to enter, so it's a no-brainer, guys. If you have a bow and you have some arrows and you take pride in your archery and you love chasing white-tailed deer across America and Canada, check them out at nawtc.com or the bonecollector.com website and get details to get signed up now. Again, the North American Whitetail Championships brought to you by Bone Collector, Michael Waddell, all of his crew out there supporting it. It's the first of its kind. It's going to be awesome. You guys are going to love it. Get signed up. Let's make this one for the ages, and let's continue it for many years to come. The Bone Collector North American Whitetail Championships, thank you very much for being a partner here at This Life Ain't For Everybody. When it comes to the whole lifestyle that you live you have you know a lot of different variations to your life and i love hearing about it all <clears throat> but <clears throat> when a, a person learns about you the first thing that comes to mind when i started researching you a little bit was um when it started and you a lot of guys you know you're like i'm a baseball player i played little league and you know i played pop warner when i was seven or eight well your dad was a ski racer is what he was known as besides being your father i i don't really i don't know your dad i don't know what he was known like around the community but professionally he was known as a ski racer and your ski career started at three years old that's right so that means you actually had bindings and your feet are in skis and you're on the mountain yep my dad's favorite uh version of that story is that he had to take me skiing because i was uh when i was three i wasn't quite potty trained yeah, so he would go out and uh, he'd try to check me into daycare and he'd be like, oh, well, is he potty trained? And my dad would be like, oh, not quite. So he had to take me skiing at a super young age because he wanted to get, be out there skiing himself. So, yeah, it started out from age three and it was just what we did as a family. Right? Every weekend we'd go out. My, my sisters are four years older than me and uh, my dad was a ski racer. My mom's, uh, my grandfather on my mom's side owned a ski resort. So... Um, it was just part of, part of what we did as a family. We, we, we cherished the outdoors in general, but I would say, you know, every, every winter weekend was spent skiing as a family and it just started out. I started out as a ski racer and, uh, always kind of had this love for being off the ground, flying through the air, doing crazy stuff. So, uh, one day I finally convinced my dad to let me try out a freestyle team and the rest is history. Was, was there... <clears throat> A time before you convinced your dad was there a time where you knew or your dad knew or a coach knew like you probably didn't have a coach before the team but was there a time where you knew personally like hey man I, I i'm a little bit elevated above the other guys i'm skiing with or i'm doing things guys that are 10 years older than me how did you know that you wanted to take it to the next level yeah i don't know if i was what's interesting is i don't think i was ever a phenom as a kid I was never that kid that everybody looked at and was like, oh, he's going to be something. But I was an adrenaline chaser. Like, among, among my ski racing friends, I was the craziest kid. I was the kid who was always jumping. I was getting in trouble for skipping race practice to be in the terrain park. And uh, when I was training, when I was racing Super G, you know, Super G is a little faster. At that, in those younger age categories, that's the fastest event you can do. And sometimes they'll have 
like a little roll or a knuckle in the in the course that you're supposed to absorb because because on skis in in terms of racing staying closer to the ground is faster but i was always the kid who'd come up with a knuckle and pop as hard as i could off of it because i wanted to send it as far as i could i didn't really care necessarily about being the fastest guy down the hill i wanted to have the most fun along the way um it wasn't until actually i started competing in half pipe and slope style and big air that i that i differentiated myself amongst the pack as a ski racer i was always decent i was i was mid to high um, decently talented but never a phenom same thing when i was competing in moguls it was like you know okay he's 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 aggressive and there's aspects of that that are good and then i spent a lot of time crashing because i was so aggressive but when i started competing at half life that's where i really kind of fell into sort of what i feel like i was made to do i was really i really enjoyed sort of the freedom of style the freedom of expression the reality is uh what's cool about free skiing versus some of the other sports that i did is it's all about doing it your way you can you can do it however you want and if you do something completely different nobody else has done before but you do it well then then you get rewarded for it and it makes it um sort of it just makes it free and that's what i love about about half pipe specifically but when you when you what age were you david when you first joined the team was at 15 years old you that's like a freshman in high school sophomore in high school you you go out and join your first competitive ski team and i assume that's in the tahoe basin uh well the the competition thing was i mean it was from as young as i can remember almost i, I was i was ski racing i joined the mount rose falcons when i was like eight and i was racing so the transition from racing to freestyle was when i was left uh, when I was 11, I convinced my dad, I actually grew up wanting to snowboard because I saw the snowboarders in the terrain parks and I was like, man, that looks fun. I want to do that. So my, my old man's rule was, okay, I'll let you try snowboarding, but you have to get to a certain level in skiing first. And so I, as soon as I, by the time I got to that level in skiing was when free skiing was getting big. Guys like Tanner Hall and C.R. Johnson and Candy Thobex were doing what I wanted to do on snowboard that they were doing on skis. And I was like, well, why, why do I need to learn a new sport? How would I just take my skis into the park? Uh, so I convinced my dad when I was 11 to let me try out the freestyle team. And his rule was, okay, I'll let you try the freestyle team for a year, but you got to do both. For one year, you got to race and do, do the freestyle team. I made it about halfway through the year. And I was like, I'm done. I'm done with racing. Like this freestyle thing, is, this, is, this is what I'm about. And ironically, I was I was in the top five in the West in slalom and GS at that time for an eleven year old. I mean, who cares what you're at at eleven? But um, and I was in the bottom five for mobile skiing because I had just it was a brand new sport I'd never done it before. And my dad's like, "Really, you want to give up what you're good at for something you're not good at?" And I was like, "Yeah, Dad, trust me. Like, I I am about this freestyle thing." So. Yeah, that was the that was the transition, and it wasn't. It didn't take long for me to be nationally ranked and, and start traveling around doing you know junior nationals and um, like I competed in my first U.S. Open I think when I was fourteen or fifteen, and uh, yeah, turned pro when I was eighteen and been doing it ever since. I'm twenty eight now and quite the ride. So, so you come out of high school as as an eighteen year old. You graduate from Wooster High School in yeah. Reno, Nevada, and College is the next step. Naturally, you went to you went to TNCC or you went to a community college for a semester or something, and then said, "Hey, 
I got an opportunity here to make a living competing on skis in freestyle skiing, which includes different things, but the half pipe was the main one, jumping, all of the different events that you would go on to do. Is there a sense of competition in your family? Is it ever breed jealousy with your sisters, your dad? You see this where, you know, the, the, when you start to excel at something and you grew up and your dad was known as the badass, and I'm not saying your dad was jealous, I'm just asking because the natural, a lot of the natural instincts of somebody is like, whoa, man, why did I ever get to that, to that level? Was it always 100% support or was there competition there where your sisters and your dad were like, whoa, whoa not so fast, you know? Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting question. I think my dad definitely is guilty somewhat of living his life vicariously through me because, um, he was the dude who was so, so good. He was, he was, he was good almost to a fault where he was probably one of the best dudes in the area on skis, but he couldn't master the mental prowess of being a competitor. He was the best guy in training, but he never won the races because he always made a mistake. And so for him to watch my, my career develop and, and early on in my career, man, I struggled in competition. I mean, I would land 10 runs out of 10 in practice and then the contest would roll around and I'd crash three runs in a row. It's like, statistically, it just doesn't make sense. If I can land 10 runs in a row, why can't I land one of these three damn runs, you know? And so my dad kind of walked through that journey with me and he's like, ah, I don't get over this. And so for him to see me sort of come into my own and and find uh, mental stability and and strength and, and mental toughness as an editor, I think it's been really awesome for him. He's like, oh, you're doing what I had hoped to do in my career uh, because of, because, I mean, he partly participated in that journey, you know? So um, certainly there's, there's a little bit of competition there. Every once in a while, I'm like, hey, dad, remember, I'm the one on these skis, not you. Like, you don't need to be stressed out because I'm doing all the work. Uh, and my sisters, for sure. My sisters, I think, more less of a competition mentality than uh, sort of like an empowerment mentality. My sisters were the ones who um, never let me be just an athlete. They're like, look, I think everybody who knew me well enough knew I was going to, I was going to take it as far as I possibly could on ski. They're like, we don't need to try to convince him to work hard on ski. He's already doing that. But my sisters were the ones who were like, Hey, you can't just be a skier. You have to be a skier and a student and a good person along the way. You know, so I, I feel really fortunate to have grown up with older sisters because for one, they were four years older than me, which made them just that much stronger and faster than me on skis. So I always had something to chase. Same thing with baseball. They played softball. I played baseball. We all played soccer together. I always had something. My sisters were always better than me at sports until I was like a sophomore or junior in high school. So I always had somebody to chase and that, that made me competitive. I naturally, I mean, I think I naturally would have been competitive anyways, but I was exceptionally competitive because of what I grew up with with my older sisters, but they never put me down. Like they never, they never tried to make me feel small about myself because of how much they accomplished. My sisters are both amazing. My, my sister, Christy is a pilot in the air force. She's the only uh, female above me amputee who's still active duty pilot flying, flying planes. And my other sister, Jessica is finishing her residency as a surgeon. So both super high achievers as individuals, but we've all, we've, we've all kind of taken our own path. And, and perhaps that's why I pursued the free skiing thing because I was like, well, like, racing is you guys. 
I'm going to do my own thing and I'm going to take it as far as I possibly can. And it's been fun to see where each of us has taken our life journey. The mental toughness of the lifestyle that you leave is, uh, or lead is a different mindset, in my opinion, meaning that when you're a pilot in the Air Force, you know that it's serious. You know that you, you, your life's at stake, other people's life's at stake. You're representing the country. You're defending the freedoms of our country. I mean, you're flying jets. You're, you're doing things that take a lot of, a lot of training, mental capacity, a lot of hours in a simulator. You're doing things that you know that that's a serious job. When you're a surgeon, I mean, anybody will tell you that being a heart surgeon or being some kind of surgeon, there's probably not a more nerve wracking thing in the world than cutting somebody's body open, operating on their internal organs or their brain or whatever it might be and getting them fixed and back to health. You're a skier. It's almost like you wake up in the morning, you're like, do I even have a job? And you think about what I'm saying for a second is like, we know you have to train. We know you have to work out. We know you have to be in top physical specimen shape, but you're a skier. You're making money and making a living on skis, what you were doing when you were three. And now you're 28 and you're making a healthy, healthy living doing it. It, did it ever mess with your mind at all? Like, man, do I need to practice today? Because really you have to go and you've already, you, you've already, it's almost like you could get this sense of entitlement. Like, man, I've already been there, done that. I grew up on the mountain. My dad had me up there when I was three. I don't need to go practice today. I'm going to go to the local pub and have a beer and watch a soccer game, or I'm going to go over and watch the AAA game in the, in the baseball stadium. You have to really have a strong mindset to go and say, hey, I'm, a, I'm a, an Olympic skier. I'm an X game skier. I'm a professional athlete. But it's almost like it can be tricky at times because your sister knows she has to go to yeah. pilot practice and, 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 and do all that stuff. You know what I'm saying? Does that make yeah. sense? No, I love the parallel you just threw that because uh, if you think about, you know, if you take three of us, us three wise kids, uh, one sister's a surgeon. She knows that her job, somebody's life depends upon her job. Same thing with my other sister, Christy, who's a pilot. A whole lot of people in her, whoever's riding the plane she's flying is dependent on her. Whereas I, the only person that's really dependent on me in those moments while I'm in the half pipe is me. I mean, obviously I'm there representing my, my community, my country, my supporters, uh, more specifically my family, depends on how well I do or don't do in competition. But at the end of the day, it comes down to the only person who's going to suffer if I crash is really just me so it is it's, it's totally self-motivated and um you have to probably the toughest part about my my job is is keeping that motivation when there's nobody else around i mean at the end of the day yeah i could i could easily go and just take a chill you know i mean i could easily just scale off the throttle and enjoy the success. I've already won more things than I ever expected to win in my life. I've already done a whole lot. So how do I keep pushing? How do I keep, how do I stay motivated? And, and for me, that mental, um, that, that mental power kind of came from, uh, before my first X Games when actually right after my, my little girl, my daughter, Nayeli was born, I had this mental sort of revolution where I realized there's things that I have control over and there's things that I don't. There's things that I can control, like what I do on pair skis. But at the end of the day, I can't control what my competitors do. I can't control what the judges think of me. I can't control the situation. I can't control the weather. 
I was getting so caught up in all these other things that I was I didn't have enough focus left for the things that I that I could control. So I started thinking about instead of setting goals in terms of competition results, instead of saying to myself, ah, I want to win the X Games, or I want to be on the podium at this event, or I want to win the, the overall World Cup globe, or I want to make the Olympic team, or all of these like defined numerical results. Instead of setting those as goals, I started saying, what do I want to do on a pair of skis in terms of tricks, in terms of runs? Okay, biggest competition of this year is going to be the X Games. All right, for X Games, I'd like to be able to do X run with this trick and that graph. And so when I, as soon as I had accomplished that at the X Games that year, suddenly my goal was fulfilled, whether the judges loved it or not, you know? And so it took all this pressure out because I could go out there and have my, if so, so say I went into the X Games saying, I want to win this event. And I do the absolute best run of my life. Haven't I already accomplished my goal? But some dude might come out and do an even better run, or the judges might just not like my run that day. So if I was putting pressure on myself to win the contest rather than putting pressure on myself to land a unique new run, um, I'm setting myself up for failure in some sense. So it was when I discovered that mentality that I started winning because I was like, all right, I'm just doing this because I because I want to see how far I can take on a pair of skis. And that's when I started kind of started my stream of success. And since then, now people ask me, well, you've won two Olympic gold medals. You've won pretty much every competition there is on skis. What keeps you motivated? And I'm like, hey, I haven't hit the limit yet. I haven't, I, haven't hit, I haven't gotten to the point where I'm like, wow, that's the best I'll ever be able to do. I still have more. I still have, I still have more tricks that I want to do. I still have uh, better combinations. Um, you know, I want to be cleaner. I want to, I want to do, I want to execute not only the hardest run ever, but I want to make it look easy, you know? So I'm constantly seeking that next level of, uh, of excellence in what I do. Yeah. And it'd be different if you said, well, I've never got a perfect hundred on a judge's scorecard. I've got to make sure that Michael, the judge that never judges me good. I want to make sure that he someday goes, David, I finally am going to give you a good score. That, and that's the thing about like ice skating in the Olympics or snow doing what you do. You're not racing against the clock like Alberta Toma did in the Olympics coming out on the GS. And you're not a bull, you're not a you're not in a baseball game to where you have two teams and an umpire, and at the end of nine innings, and maybe you might go into extra innings, but there's gonna be a winner. Mm-hmm. A bull rider gets on a bull and he goes out there and gets his ass kicked and just throttled around for eight seconds, and that judge could go, Well, you didn't spur hard enough, you didn't have your hand right. That's a that's a 79. And I'm like, whoa, man, what do I gotta do to get a good score? And those bull riders have to have the same mentality that you're talking about right now to where you're not you, you're you're at the mercy of the judges so the only your mindset is so dead on when i think about what you're saying is like i'm gonna go do what i do i can't when i was a competitive goose caller and I, it's, it's so weird to, to to relate to you and what you do on skis to what i'm doing but i would have the same mindset like i know who's going to be there I know that Hunter Grounds and Kelly Powers and Big Sean and, and all these different goose callers are going to be in the competition. There could be upwards of 60 guys in this competition today. They all sound like geese. They're all badass. They've all won the Worlds. They've all won the U.S. Open. They've all won the Winchester. They've all done it, been there, done that. I have to go in there and do what I've been doing on my short read goose call and my routine. And I got to nail that 90-second routine for when the time I see that light go off, when it comes on, I have to be the best that I can do. And those judges behind the curtains have no idea that it's me up there. They might think I'm Hunter that day if I'm on my A game. Who knows? Mm-hmm. So that whole mindset is the same thing in life is that 
to stay motivated every day in life. It doesn't matter if you're a janitor or a garbage man or a pilot for Delta or an Olympic, an Olympic caliber athlete. You have to find self-motivation every day to go and perform your best because a janitor, I love when I walk through a school and see Spick and Spam and know that those people take pride in what they do and he's whistling and, and sweeping and he's got his headphones on and he's probably doing a little spin on his broom and dancing. I've met those guys yep. and they get it. They understand that, hey, today is better than yesterday and I'm going to make sure that I get the most out of it and I'm going to perform my best. You never know who's watching. You never know what doors can open. If you go into it with pessimistic attitude or down about it and be like, oh man, today's just like yesterday. I can't get, get, get motivated at all, you never know when that next door might crack to where you might be able to beat it down or kick it down. Yep. And that's what like, and that's what you're saying is like, hey, I get if I get one better trick or I get one better transition, and I go and I'm self fulfilled with this run, I might get a bronze, but I know that I was as good as my my gold medal run a year ago. That's such a cool that's such a cool approach to life. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head when you talked about um, how everybody has their own. Journey. Everybody has what for them is their Olympic gold medal run. You know, what, what is it that you're trying to achieve? What is it that you're trying to accomplish? And one of the, one of the themes in my life lately has been, I mean, I've been, since I won again last year in Pyeongchang, I've been having all kinds of cool opportunities to talk about my journey. And at the Olympics this this past competition, uh, my, it's a, it's a best of three run format. And on two out of three of those runs, my bindings failed. I didn't mess up. I didn't make a bad takeoff. My bindings actually didn't do their job. And then I came out on my third run and landed and won an Olympic gold medal. People, are, people have asked me quite a bit, how did you pull that off? And I was like, well, I focused on the things that I have control of. I couldn't control the fact that my seeds didn't stay on my feet for that first two runs. I let that go and I still went for it. I went, I still went for the run that I came there to do and I landed. I, I, I wouldn't tell you before I dropped into the third round whether, whether I was going to pull it off or not. A lot of people looked at my, looked at my demeanor like, man, I can't believe you knew you were going to land that run and then you did. The reality is I had no idea. Did you, sorry to interrupt, but did you even think there was a chance you could still win gold? Was there even a chance in your mind after, after the first two rounds? Yeah. The reality is... On paper, I had that competition won before the day began. Because of the run that I had constructed, the run that I had built, if I pulled it off and pulled it off well, it was, I'm not going to say unbeatable, but it was near unbeatable. So I knew if I can pull this off, I have a pretty dang good chance of winning this contest. But I wasn't caught up in winning or not. I was I was more just excited about pulling off, like I said, pulling off what I wanted to do on a pair of skis. So when I went to, when I got ready to drop in for that third round, I reminded myself, Hey, you've got one more shot at this. It's a best of three format. So that the Olympics are best of three, best of three. So wh- whichever run you land, your best scoring run is the one they take. So you can crash on two runs, which I did and land the third one is still in the contest. And so I reminded myself that I was like, Hey, those first two runs, they don't matter. You got one more shot at this, let it ride. And you talked about how, you know, when you're, when you're going into these goose, call, goose calling competitions, you can't focus on what everybody else is doing. And my theme this year is that I'm not a superhero. So people ask me, how did you, oh man, how are you so mentally tough? I'm like, I'm not mentally tough. I just didn't worry about what I couldn't control. 
I didn't let those but, things. But that, but that takes mental aptitude to be yeah, able to do that. True. To turn it all and repent. Yeah, I guess I'm trying to find instead of just instead of just tooting my own horn and saying, "Yeah, I am mentally tough." I'm like, "Why am I mentally tough?" And trying to help people, help people in their own journey through that mental toughness. Yeah, I was going into that third run, kind of wondering whether there was going to be a vortex in the half pipe that swallowed me whole. Like that's that was my mentality. Like, man, what? my skis couldn't stay on my feet for the first two runs. What's next? You know, I was kind of laughing about it. Like, man, this day is going crazy. But um, I don't have enough mental capacity to think about what everybody else is doing and still do my job well. I have to go in. I'm not a superhero, man. When I go into those competitions, I have to focus very specifically on what I can and can't do and let the rest just roll off my shoulders. I think you're a strategist, though, in a certain sense, too, though. I think, I think what you did is I think that you knew your run was so strong. And if I could leave a lasting impression on the TV world, the judges, the Olympic Village, and all of the different contestants and all my competitors and competition stand at the top of that half pipe. And if I land this on my third and final run after I just kind of you know, accidentally let my mind, I'm not saying you did, but I'm like, dude, if you think about it, those judges have just watched all these runs being done and you just leave this lasting impressions as your final run. And they're like, wow. Like that's, that's like a strategy that again, going back to goose call is like, Hey, if I could leave that last, that last real goosey sound in their ears and they're sitting there listening to you, like you got to make them remember you because how am I going to differentiate myself from the other competitors when a lot of their sounds are just as goosey as mine? You got to make something stick in those judges head. And a lot of it is what you're talking about, David is like consistency and doing what you can do. And, And one of the main things that I always pride myself in is if I couldn't do a spit note, I wasn't going to go up there and do it just because I thought the judges liked to hear it. I'm going to go up there and sound as goosey as I possibly can. Just like you're going into that half pipe going, I'm going in here to do my best, my best routine on these free skis. And I think that it, it, relating it back to what we talked about with a janitor or, or a surgeon or a bus driver is that once you find your way in life, and you found it at, at an early age in free skiing and talked to your dad like, hey, man, trust me, dad. You said those words. You said, trust me, dad. I know that this freestyle deal is for me. Yeah. If you would have went out and failed, you know you're still going to have the love and admiration of your family. Exactly. But you went out and lit the freaking world on fire in a sense that you sit here with a lot of humility. And I love that about you learning you and, and becoming friends with you is like you want to you want to be motivated. You want to speak to kids. You want to be part of your, your, your spiritual group at church and your family and your two kids and your, your your son and daughter mean so much to you, which we'll get into in a little bit. But the humility in the way you talk is so refreshing because I'm not saying I'm, I would never call out anybody on, on, on the way that their attitude is when they have you haven't just tasted success. Like you have literally won four gold medals in the X game half pipe. You haven't just competed. You haven't just had a sponsor put that green M on your hat and say, hey, I am a monster athlete. You've won four gold medals at the X Games. You've won two gold medals for the U.S. Olympic team. You've represented our country in a matter of, yes, we are the best. We, we're not the best because we, we are favorite, because we're, we've always been. We're, skiing is a worldwide event. There's been, there, I mean, the Swedes, there's, uh, there's Olympic skiers all over this world that smash Americans on a daily basis. You went into these competitions and, and from 15 years old, or let's say 11 years old in the Tahoe Basin of Northern Nevada and Northern California, you've, with humility, have 
done everything that you could possibly do on ski. So to hear you say that you haven't, you have to really break down the mental approach of it, of saying, hey, look, I'm 28 years old. I'm in this game still. I'm not yeah. looking to just win just some money. I'm just getting warmed up. So if you go down your list of accolades and you and you really break it down what you've done with your world titles and your world cups and your Olympics and your X Games, and there's a lot more than that, it's almost it's almost unfathomable for somebody from the outside looking in to go, yeah, I'd keep going too. Because you're like, what am I going to do now? But it's so cool to hear you say that it's about that routine. Yeah, it's about and that's what life is, man. You got to find that routine. Yeah, you got to find. And it, in, what's cool for me too is because I stumbled upon that mentality. I feel lucky to have stumbled upon that mentality. That my best today mentality that I've been skiing with for years. But the reality is, it's relatable in every aspect of my life. You know, it's relatable in. You know, how I shoot my bow when I'm getting ready for bow hunting season. It's relatable in how I act around my wife and kids. It's like, it's always seeking to be the best version you can be in whatever it happens to be that you're doing. I think people get, people get a little caught up in our society on our jobs and they almost, they almost treat that as your only life. You know, the only life you're living is the one that people see on paper or the one that people see on the TV screen. The reality is I got, I got so many more things that are going on beyond just skiing that, um, the skiing is just a, just a portion of it. And that's part of the reason I was able to lend that run in, in Pyeongchang is that you mentioned it earlier. I, I knew that my main job, my most important job, dad, husband, that stuff was already there and it was going to be there whether I landed that run or not. And so I wasn't pressured. I was, I was feeling opportunistic. I was like, yeah, this is, this is a cool opportunity, but I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't need to win that to to be fulfilled. I don't need to win anything ever to be fulfilled. I still have some things I want to do. And if I win a few things along the way, I'm going to be so you mentioned, you know, a list of accolades and and I'll be completely honest with you, man. I've blown my own self away. I've, 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 achieved far beyond my own expectations in terms of competition results, but it was only because I stopped seeking the results and the medals and the accolades and the fame and money. I stopped seeking those things. I started just seeking excellence on skis that I was, that I've been able to achieve that. So it's, it's cool to see it come full circle because when I was young and I wanted to prove myself and I was intense, I, people have described me as militant. Uh, I think Remy Moore was the first person who described me as a, he's like, man, you are so dang militant. Remy and I have, have been competing for a couple of years. Uh, we do the total archery challenge together every year. And uh, it's always like a little bit of a, a jab in the ribs. I'm like, all right, Remy, I'm going to shoot you this year. And he's like, I know you are because you're so dang militant. Like, I know when you set out to win something, you'll win or die trying. And so we, to, to see it come full circle from this super militant, kid who couldn't land a competition run to save his life to all of a sudden um, somebody who isn't defined by success or win, winning or losing and yet here I still am here I still am able to, to do what I love to do and, and keep chasing these dreams um, it's, it's been man it's been a great ride did you push people away during your life being that that focused and that towards success did you it, 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 I've seen it in my life to where it almost 
you demand so much perfection out of yourself and you're so critical of yourself, it almost parlays into what your expectations of other individuals become. And um, it, I, I got a quote from a friend one time that I'll, I'll find and read it to you to see if it, if it relates to you. But when you're, when you're always seeking perfection, you tend to push people away that don't fit that bill. And then when you start to mature a little bit and you really do find the real reasons and you let it go. It's all, I just had, I had a big meeting in Nashville day before yesterday with a, uh, a country artist. And he says that all of his success, and I'm not making this up just because you're sitting here. He sat across the table from me, just like you're doing. I wasn't on a podcast. I just eat lunch with him. And, uh, he says the success came when I said, I just let it go. I, I did not wrap myself around that end goal every day. I did not wake up and was so, quote unquote, Remy Warren to David Wise militant. But that's, this, that's the mindset. It's almost like we've, we've got a mission. We're going in here. We're a military. we got forces ready to roll. Our soldiers are ready. And it, as soon as he let it go, he goes, I started getting hits and cuts and, and all this stuff and it's so weird for me to sit here and listen to you like you were that guy that would push somebody away because you're like man if it doesn't have something to do with this end goal get out of my way kind of attitude yep. isn't that it's, it's so weird how success comes when you let that go yep. but could you I'm sorry could this success have got to you if you weren't that geared towards it at an early age who knows it's all it's all a journey because yeah I started out so militant so focused I mean when I from, from the time I was 15 until uh, until I had that mental revolution we're talking about at 21, I would wake up morning till night and I'd say, what can I be doing to be the best year in the world? For in this moment, what can I be doing? Am I doing that? If I wasn't doing it, I would straighten back up and I'd get to doing it. I would literally, I mean, literally that was all my life was focused around. And because of that, yeah, I pushed people away. Not only did I push people away, but I also ignored some amazing things that I did have. You know, I was so caught up in this need for success and this need for glory that I was missing so many, so much beauty along the way. And it was actually, uh, you know, getting married and having a little girl that made me realize, wow, life is a lot bigger than this game I play on a pair of skis and a half. But like, there's a whole lot more important than what I do on skis. And it was because I noticed that all of a sudden I was like, man, I've been missing out on a lot of cool things. And once I started like seeing the beauty around me and enjoying the ride, that's when I started landing runs and winning contests because I was, I was, I was having the most fun instead of going into the competition and saying, I need a win today. I would tell myself, man, I'm going to, I'm going to have the most fun today. Everybody else might not like this half fight. I like this one. I'm going to have the most fun. And when I was having the most fun was when it came through on skis and people were like, man, David's not just doing a half pipe run today. That is a piece of art. Like he is using his body to paint the picture for us. And, and they enjoyed it. And that's when I started winning contests. It's, it's almost fun when you listen to Tiger Woods talk about a golf course. People would be like, oh, they're bitching about the greens or the greens are playing too rough. Or, the, you know, it, 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 the, the, the sand ball, you know, the, the pins are a different place and they've made the sand too tough this year. He's like, I like this course. I'm ready to roll. This I course like is mine. Yeah. This is mine. And that mentality is so funny to listen to you talk again and listen to this parallel real quick, David, about. I'm always in what I do for a living in the hunting industry. I'm always talking about the sooner that you can recognize in your hunting career, how important and how blessed we are to get to wake up and go to duck camp, turkey camp, deer camp, chucker camp, pheasant camp. It doesn't matter what you do. It might be sturgeon camp up on the Columbia Basin or steelhead down in the Sacramento River. The sooner you realize in your outdoor career 
that this hashtag make a pile or piles make smiles or we got to kill a limit every day. As soon as you get that out of your psyche, and I'm not saying that you're not going to go through it because there's a time in your life where you chase the big bucks, you chase the limits of ducks, you chase, you, you got to have the greatest hunt ever. You got to pull that trigger so many times to breed a smile. And I'm like, listen, the, the, the truth is when you realize and stop and take a deep breath and go, man, look at that fire smell that coffee, look at that wet dog. And I started talking about that 10 years ago about how important the, the camaraderie is. And, yeah. and I'm not saying I invented it. I just mentally in myself was like, dude, I'm up in Canada and I'll be damned if I'm just going to care about shooting another goose or duck because a yeah. monkey could do it. I got the Saskatchewan river right here. I got white tail deer and elk looking at me. I have, I have, best friends in the lodges and these meals being cooked for me and I'm sitting in a hot tub while it's snowing in northern Saskatchewan and all I can think about is how I'm going to limit out the next day it's the yeah. same mentality it's like now I'm so fulfilled when I go into hunting camp and we might kill three of that hole that you're looking at right there in Arkansas I could go into that hole it's called the Mitchell hole and maybe not even shoot at a duck and go back to that lodge and eat Mr. Billy's breakfast and people hear me talk about Mr. Billy's breakfast all the time and know what I'm getting ready yep. to experience for the rest of that day, evening, and night, and be fine. Yep, totally fine. Yeah, it's, it's funny, you, uh, you're you talking about a concept that I'm actually talking about. I'm doing a TED Talk this Saturday. Uh, by the time this podcast comes out, you guys will be able to check it out on YouTube. And it's that's quite a, quite a big piece of the theme, is that Hollywood wants this concise, neat story with a climax and an ending. And I feel like that's what we get caught up in seeking as hunters some of the time. Like you said, you know, hitting the limit, stacking piles, shooting the biggest buck. Oh, that's, yeah, that's a decent buck, but he's not four years old, blah, blah, blah. All these things, we're seeking the end goal, but we're missing some, by doing that, by focusing too much of our attention on the end goal, we're missing so much of the journey along the way. Man, I, I, I had this, I had an amazing bow season last year. And it ended up shooting a massive 12-inch spread fork and horn at the end of the trip. And I had one of the biggest bucks in my life get away from me. And, you know, I was sitting I was sitting there waiting for him to come in. He walked in. He got to 95 yards. And, and I was, you know, my heart started pumping. I was getting ready to draw back. I was like, as soon as he hit 60 yards, it's, it's game on. And he stopped at 95 yards, and he just started looking around him. And he got really old. He, he, he got like those old smart bucks do. And he was like, something's not right about this situation. And he circled the water hole at 95 yards and I never got a shot at him. And if I could go back, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, if I could go back and run the deer with a controller and have him walk in 30 more yards, I wouldn't do it because my journey continued because I didn't shoot that buck that day. I chased him again the next day. And then I chased his, his buddies for the rest of the week. And I got way more hunting out of the story than I would have if I had gotten that biggest buck out of my life that day. And I, like I said, I ended up shooting a, a, a young deer and, and the freezer's full and I'm eating deer all year long. But I'm stoked about the journey, not just the end goal, you know? And, and um, isn't, that, isn't that the... I, so sad. Isn't it, isn't it funny how... I could go stand on the top of a half pipe and be your guest at the competition. Wow, I'm here and I've done this. And I catch myself doing this. Like, And I'm, where I'm going with this is 
these things and what you talked about Hollywood. Well, now Hollywood has been this this whole mentality of telling a story and and, and branding or let self gratification or I could go online and know that what you had for breakfast this morning and people have heard me talk about this before, but the journey is so much better when you're not watching it through this. So I'm standing at the top of the half pipe and I'm filming your run through this and I'm going, why am I watching this run through this four inch screen when I, yeah. when I have the entire vast world of, of where, whether it was Aspen or Tahoe or, or, or wherever you're at in Calgary. I'm here. I'm in the moment. Yep. These things right here have, when you go to a concert and you, and you're in the pit and you stand on the floor and you see footage of a concert, it's amazing to me how many people are watching. Who, who's going to watch those videos again? It's first, my first question. Sure. And if, whether it's Axel Rose or Steven Tyler, or Elton John, or whoever you're watching up on stage, the moment is what it's about. Yeah. And people are so caught up in sharing and, and all of this stuff. And, Enjoy that moment, that yeah. journey. I'm not saying that don't take your phone out and get a picture, but don't watch the whole concert through your phone, man. Totally. You know what I'm saying? And yeah. life is a concert. Life is a rock concert. Absolutely. It's freaking, you got it. You have to have that kind of mentality of, hey, I'm going into this and I'm going to have the best time of my life. And I think that this and what you're talking about of chasing that, chasing that trophy and chasing that gold medal, it's so perfect to hear you say, I didn't chase the gold medals. They came because I let it go. I just yeah. said, you know what? This is me. Judges, this is my best I have today. As long as I don't fall, I'm pretty confident that you're going to like what I have to say. Just like when you go into a business meeting or a negotiation across the table. Look, I'm not saying that I'm the best. I'm just thinking that you're going to like what I have to say today. And I think it's going to be better than what the guy before me or the few that you're going to listen to after me say. And that's when success comes. I'm, I'm letting it go. This is me. And this is what I got right now. Yeah, you go into it. You go into it convinced. If, if you go into it prepared to have something that nobody else has then you can go into those moments convinced that you do have something that we all says. That's all you gotta that's all you gotta take into those negotiations. In the same way that's all I gotta take into that into those runs through the half fight. I drop in knowing that I have a run nobody else is gonna do. And at the same thing you you walk in you walk in you say, hey, I may not be the most talented guy here. I may not be the best looking guy here. I may not even be the sharpest shooter on the block. But I tell you what, I have something nobody else has. And I think you guys are going to like that. That's that's all it takes. That's negotiation right there. People, the art of it. It's the art of it. And, and, and skiing is a negotiation between you and judges because you you don't have a clock telling you don't have anything else. Yeah. It's a negotiation. Life is a negotiation. So I tell people, how do I become a professional hunter? How do I get to do what you do? It's not about being the best duck hunter in the world. Because I'm by far not even close. I know 10-year-old kids that'll smoke me on a duck call. I saw three of them in Nashville last week. And I was, it, it, it almost makes me go like, you have to pay attention to what's in front of you. And you have to see the bigger picture. And you have to be, be able to negotiate and network and shake hands and not push people away. You can't go into it like, man, I'm the best duck hunter in the world. I won the world championships and I shot 19 days of limits in a row because I'm going to look at you and go, so? So you have, I hope you had fun. I hope you, I hope you got some good memories out of it. I hope you got some stories to tell from duck camp, learn how to negotiate, learn how to network and learn how to open up doors and kick those doors down. Once you get a little bit of a, of a steamroller mentality moving forward, I can't tell somebody if you want to be a professional hunter, you got to follow these guidelines. You cannot tell somebody if you want to win all these gold medals and get paid to ski, Here's what you do. You got to leave Reno at 9 a.m. on a Wednesday and you got to get on the ski lift by 9.17 and that you got to be on the fresh powder. You can't do it. 
there's no approach to it except giving your best every day and having that that mental that mental confidence of saying, hey, look, this is me. This is me. It's not a take it or leave it attitude. You don't want to say, hey, take it or leave it. I'm not entitled to this meeting. I'm not entitled to be on this mountain. This is me. This is my best. I've been working up for this every day. And I hope that you see what I'm bringing to the table today. And then people go, Chad, do you think you could shoot our shotguns and, and fly the side? Yeah. David, do you think you could use our skis and wear our camo and wear and, and drink our energy drink and represent our credit card? Those things don't happen because you're the best looking skier on the mountain. You're well-spoken. You're in shape. You have a great mentality in life. You're humbled. You are a winner in so many different ways. That's what people got to understand is that you're not getting all these deals just because you're the world champion. It doesn't come that way. You represent these brands in a way that they see fit. And that's what's going to keep it going for years after you quit skiing. And that's the secret is how do I maintain this? Getting there is one thing. Totally. Maintaining it's the hardest part. Absolutely. Yeah. And and also being aware going into it with that awareness that some people aren't going to get it because some people are caught up. Some people in those in those marketing positions are caught up in the oh, did you how many how many limits in a row did you shoot? How many competitions have you won? And they're not even gonna see how genuine you are and how well you can tell a story and how relatable you are to the audience. They're not even gonna see it. And so you have to say, all right, I'm gonna present my best. And the people who get it are going to get it, and I'm going to and I'm going to cherish those people. And the people who don't, oh well, I'm, I'm going to let that roll off my back. I love, you. I love it. You can take that mentality all the way down to the aspect of the hunt of the hunt, and and, and people are like. Man, there's so many ducks around, and we're not getting them, and, and we're not doing this. And you're like, how do we become better? I'm like, listen, do what you do: hide, shake the water sound like a duck, look like a duck. You're only going to kill the ducks that were meant to kill, get killed that day. You're never going to get them all. If you were, there wouldn't be 47 million of them in the flyway every year. So you bring it all the way down to that little aspect of the actual success of a hunt. You're not going to get them all. You're not going to win every competition in life. You're going to get your ass kicked a lot of times. It's the ability to say, you know what? And I go back to Tiger. He goes, it could be the worst round of my life. I could be 15 shots out of the lead and all it takes is one little chip shot that I hit perfect and feel it that yep. brings me back to the course the next day with the right mental approach to catch up and win that turn. and there's nobody better that won than Tiger Woods in the history of athletics right. in the history of competition the guy was a militant SOB that was he was unbreakable it, maybe he paid the price for that in some ways but he came back again last year with that approach of like I let it all go I'm, yep. I'm going, and he's winning again. And we, we, there's winners in life that you can't follow a recipe. You can't go and say, well, I'm going to start golfing when I'm three like Tiger did and become Tiger Woods. It may never happen. Yep. And when you're a baseball player like I was in college, I had it on my refrigerator. I am one of the best 1,700 college baseball or high school baseball players in this country because that's how many kids were going to go in the draft that year. Yep. Well, I didn't get drafted. But I still went, you know what? I'm still good enough. I'm still going to go out and do something with that right approach. Yeah. And now I hunt with major leaguers all the time. And I'm not saying that that is, makes me anybody, but I love being around them. I love being around baseball. And my approach in life has kept me in the game. It's kept me on that podium of life. Life is a podium and you don't always have to be the champion. You just have to be consistent yep. and have that right mental approach. And now I get to go to spring training and call these major leaguers my friends because my approach in life my approach to the hunt. They appreciate it. 
we get along. That hunt brings all these different walks of life together. Like I'm sitting across from you. You're a world champion and an Olympic champion, X Games champion skier. I'm a, I, I won a meat calling contest once with a duck call, but we both hunt. And now we're together. We're going to be friends. And we have that, that whole attitude is like, it's so easy for me to get. And I'm like, why can't other people get it? And you sit down and you talk to somebody and you're like, that's why you're not letting go. You're not sitting there. You're, you're always geared towards the gold medal. Yep. You can't be. Yeah. No, you got it. You got it. You have to, there's a whole lot of dudes who are a lot more talented than I am. There's a whole lot of dudes who are a lot better, who, you know, just in their DNA are better at doing what you do than you are. But because you can relate well to people, you have those, you have those achievements. You know, you have, you have that, that following, you know, people want to, people want to listen to what you have to say. People want to listen to what we have to say because we're relatable. And, and that's my, that's my goal with you know, sharing everything on YouTube and, and all of the stuff that I'm doing. So I've kind of come full circle because you talked about earlier about how many, when you're watching a concert, especially if you watch from the back, how many little screens are sticking up in the air? Amazing. You know, it's Amazing. people's best concert, the coolest concert they'll ever see in their life. And they're busy staring at a four inch screen and trying to find the balance for me between living this life and enjoying it and taking it in, but also remembering, Hey, I'm the luckiest dude in the world. I do have to share some of this. If anything, I fall on the opposite end of the spectrum. Uh, social media has always been a struggle for me because I'm busy taking it all in. I, I don't, I don't, I leave my phone in my pocket most of the time. So uh, I'm trying to find the balance now. And, and I really feel like I've stumbled into, into a cool thing with the YouTube thing uh, is like sharing the journey. Like, yeah, I do have the coolest job in the world here. This is how I got here. This is, these are the steps along the way because I'll, up until now in my career, all people have seen has been the highlights. Here's That's three, what social media is. Yeah, here's three, runs, here's three runs for the X Games. Here's three runs at World Championships. Here's three runs at the World Cup. Here's this, here's that. And this all just highlights, but I'm, I'm enjoying sharing through YouTube and through Instagram and, and being more real with social media. It's hard to be real with social media. It's really easy to just post the good stuff, but I'm posting everything along the way and, and, and helping people kind of feel like they're part of the journey. And, that, and that's what makes it fun. So yeah, it, it's a challenge to find that balance because I mean, your job, you have to be constantly posting things. You have to be constantly keeping the audience involved. And, and that's a good thing, but you also have to be enjoying your life and, and, and living it along the way. It's, uh, it's pretty, pretty interesting. It's interesting and it's difficult. Yeah. It truly is because I have such a weird mentality about social media It'll, to the point to where I, I have nothing personal on it. A lot of people don't know a lot of the intricacies of my personal life because I don't share them. But like I can have a barbecue here with a bunch of friends and because of our association with, with Traeger or with a cooking company or whatever it is, I have my phone up and I'm filming it and I'm, and I'm documenting it. And you know why? It's because in what we've done, content has become key. Content has become king. And if I'm not getting content, I feel like I am not doing my job as a brand ambassador. I'm not doing my job as, um, you know, the face of the foul life. I'm not doing my job as somebody that works with a Benelli or works with the federal or whoever it is. And then I'm like, wait a minute. I have to still have that balance of what you're talking about of, Hey, I'm only going to do this for 10 minutes. And 
I, I tend to wear people out. I got to the point to where I was branding so much because I knew I needed that content to where I want to be able to put that phone down and go, man, I, this, I'm doing this recipe because I love it. And I truly, it's a trick. It's tricky because I don't want people ever to go, you're only hunting because you're getting paid to do it. You're only barbecuing on that trader because they're paying you to do it. I sincerely love having people in my backyard standing around a grill with a cold beer. Absolutely. Grilling. Yes, we do happen to work with Traeger. I feel in my heart, they're the best. I used Traeger before they paid me to use Traeger. Mm -hmm. That doesn't matter though. The point is, is that during that barbecue and that Traeger's on, I have to find a way to show that it's relatable to the rest of these people that are following the foul eye for this podcast or our social media or whatever it is, because that's how I make a living. But there, th that balance is where I find it. It's like, I'll be damned. If I'm going to this concert Saturday night and I'm going to film the whole thing, I might give a snippet just to say, hey, because people want to know, hey, what's going on in Chad's life or whatever? What's going on in David's life? And it's such a weird thought process to think that. People really, and you're like, do they really? Well, yeah, because a lot of people are watching. A lot of people are replying. A lot of people are engaged. You want that engagement, right? You want people to be engaged. Sink their fingernails into what you're doing. I wonder what it would be like to be in the half pipe with David. Just sit on the ski lift with him. Just sit there and talk to him about what's getting ready to go down when he gets to the top of this mountain. People want to know that, man. They don't ever get to experience that. I want to know it. I've never been on a pair of skis. But when I watch you ski, I'm like, oh, could you imagine the feeling that's in your brain, your, men your mental state, your physical state, and the gas and the how it takes your breath away when you drop into that half pipe? Those things are gigantic. That's life in its biggest, rawest form. It's a snow-covered, manicured half-pipe on a mountain that's 10,000 feet high in elevation. You can't get scarier than that. And that's what I'm saying. It's like, I want to know. So I want to see your content. I want to know what's going on. And that's it's, it's become part of the branding. It's become part of marketing. It's part, part of public relations and advertising and sales. So you can't be ignorant to it. If you're in the business of marketing and broadcast and selling and manufacturing and trying to sell goods, you can't be ignorant and go, I'm not going to be a part. If that was the case, then Budweiser would be like, we, we got five Super Bowl commercials. You'll never see us on social media. They're all over social media yeah. with every one of their brands. There's a reason why Facebook is so valuable. They own Instagram now. There's, there's a reason why everybody's on it because it works. It works. It reaches the crowd, but there's got to be that balance, man. Yeah, it's, it, you brought up a good point too. And uh, it's funny the parallels in our journey because you're, we're working in, in two, they're both outdoor industries, but they're, they're very different. And, but at, at the same time, there's a lot of similarities. In fact, uh, you talked about how you only work, that you were cooking on Trader before they, before they ever sponsored you. And uh, as my career, as I've matured as a professional athlete, I've learned that it's better to take a pay cut than to work with a company that you don't align with. You know, um, when I was young, I was just, I mean, to be honest, I was trying to pay the bills. So I was going to take any dollar anybody would throw at me and I would put any product on in order to get that dollar because I was sleeping on the couch eating wrong, you know? So... Now that I'm in, I guess I'm fortunate enough to be choosy about who I work with, but I'm only working with companies that I really believe in. I'm only working with people whose products I actually would use, whether they pay me for it or not. You know, and, and I, I'm kind of doing the same thing on the hunting side. I'm doing quite a bit of hunting these days. And I'm not just going to stick anything on my bow and use it just because that person's happy and willing to pay for a couple of my hunts or whatever. I'm only going to use the things that I want to use. And if I can happen to make a deal with that company, then great. If not, oh well. 
You know, it's, it's, it's important to have integrity when you're in a position like we're in, where you are presenting, I mean, for you, you get to present hunting to the masses. You get to, people get to live vicariously through you because they'd love to not have to go to their nine to five every day. And they'd love to go out and sit in the duck blind with the goose blind or chase whitetails or whatever it is. They'd love to, but they can't. So they get to live their life vicariously through you. So if you are presenting them something that's not true, then, then you're, you know, you're, you're wasting their, you're wasting their time, you're wasting their, their effort. So yeah, we have a responsibility to be, to have integrity when it comes to the products we, the products we support, the things that we put out there. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really nice when you don't have to work hard at marketing for a company that you work with. It's like, no, this is what I want to do. This is what I'd be cooking on anyways. This is, this is what I would be wearing, whether or not I got paid for it. It's, 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 it's awesome to hear that too, because I've started thinking when you're talking of like getting there and I talked about getting there is one thing, maintaining it and the maintenance of it. How many hours a day do you have to be in the gym or on the trampoline or in the half pipe? And people don't see a lot of that unless you're telling them that. And they, it does it doesn't you don't need to do that because to fulfill you, but to tell that journey of how you're getting there is so interesting to people. And that it's almost like you you have to how can I say this and not sound lame? Is being in the position that we are, sometimes it's hard to admit it. It's almost hard for me to wake up in the morning sometimes and go, I'm a, I, I get to hunt for a living. I get, I get paid to be on TV. I get paid. And I don't want to ever say that because it almost comes across arrogant. And I'm not, I don't want to be, I'm saying like, I have a hard time of being like, man, this is really what I do. Oh yeah. I got to do this. Oh yeah. I got to do this. It's, it's almost hard to admit that we get to do this. And it's not a, a dream that is going to end real quick. This is what we do. It's my dad was a union plumber for 35 years. That's what he did. I'm, I get to hunt for a living. And to say that almost sounds funny. I get to go out and get paid to set up decoys and be in the best part of the world in duck camp. In my opinion, there's no, you probably say the best place in the world is the mountain. I say the best place in the world is hunting camp. It's better than Barcelona. It's better than the, the Almafi coast of Italy. I don't care where you're at. There's no place like duck camp America. People hear that and they're like, yeah, that's cool. And then I'm like, I really mean that. I truly in my heart get off on the, that lifestyle. And then I have to admit to myself like, oh yeah, this is my job. I don't know if that's resonating with you, but you get to wake up every day and say, I get paid to represent America, to represent monster, to represent moment. You can talk about what you want to talk about. And the bottom line is, is that's the truth. You get paid to live a dream life. Being there, it's hard to admit though. It's hard to get there. It's hard to maintain it. And it's even hard to admit it once you've achieved it. And I think that that whole mentality comes from that foundation of humility and knowing that, hey, I'm not chasing I'm not chasing gold. I'm chasing the memories. My, my guys on my team on that bus ride up to that mountain mean everything to me. The Olympic Village means everything to me. The, the, the journey there, it's not about, don't get me wrong, I love hearing that national anthem play and, and Dave's on, and I'm on the gold medal podium, of course. But the, if you miss all the other shit, that gold medal doesn't mean half as much. Because really, where is it now? Is it in a lockbox? Is it hanging above your mantle? I get it, it's a gold medal. But man, if you didn't have all of the stories that go with it, I don't know if it'd mean as much. It wouldn't mean nearly as much. Yeah, you you have to learn to include people, include the people that matter along the way. You know, if if it 
if at the end of the day it's only about me, then nobody's really going to care. It's we have to we have to participate with people in this journey, and and it is it's about it's about the team, it's about the team effort, it's about how everything comes together, and uh, being being I think you you nailed hit the nail on the head when you said it's about humility too. It comes down to. Um, Kind of like, you know, when I wake up in the morning, sometimes I'm, I'm surprised where I am. I, I, I take, I take stock of the situation. And I'm like, man, I get to do the best job in the world. And having that, um, almost a lack of entitlement about it, being like, wow, I'm so fortunate is so important. And the same thing with what you were saying, when you wake up and you say, wow, I'm fortunate to have this job. I'm fortunate to be able to spend so much time in duck camp. For me, I feel so fortunate to spend so much time in the mountains. That's the, that's that's true humility. I think a lot of people people get caught up in the journey. People get caught up in, in seeking success and glory, and then they lose sight of it. And then they get they get caught up in entitlement. I know. I'm sure you know a bunch of dudes who are who are very entitled. Right. You know, professional hunters, professional shooters, whatever. They they where they they show up. They're always grumpy. They're cranky about this, cranky about that. Always complaining about something. That's because they're not taking stock of, of what they do have. They, we, we are so lucky. I, I, was, so lucky. I, I was that guy. I was the guy that would go to camp and be the most stressed out person in the world. Like, we're here. we got to film hunts. We were spending so much money. we got all this equipment and all these cameramen and all this stuff going on. i got sponsors in camp. If I don't perform and I don't do it and I don't get them on the ducks and we don't get a bunch of dead, dead ducks and dead geese on film, we're not going to succeed and the foul life is going to suck and we're going to fail. We're going to lose every sponsor we had. And then what am I going to do? And then I opened my eyes and I went, wait, nobody even gives a shit about any of that stuff I just said, except me. Take me out of the picture and my whole focus and and driven militant attitude. And as soon as I dropped that and started being like, man, I love you. I love being in camp with you. You mean everything to me. And and showing that what I I am such a little drop of what's going on in that camp that I'm, I'm, I'm just a piece of that puzzle. And if I didn't have all these other puzzles, then when I look at that thing on the table, there's like, what kind of puzzle is that? It's missing so many pieces, but now I can go, Oh, there's my buddy, Brandon. Oh, there's Joe. Oh, there. Oh, well, there's my dog. Well, that I've stood against that tree like 90 times. That tree means everything to me. It's given me so much, so many memories and so much passion in life. Just being by that tree and, and hearing the leaves blow and hearing the wind and hearing the branches shake. I started realizing all that. Mm-hmm. I'm like, dude, I'm just, I'm just part of this. I, I'm so humbled to be here. And get to do what I do. And I think that, you know, our partners and our sponsors and, and potential sponsors, they started seeing that. They're like, man, those guys really do give a shit about the farmer. Yep. They are literally going to farmers' houses and having breakfasts and conversations about what it means to manicure God's earth every day. And then take it and put it back on the shelf and give it to their son or the next farmer that's waiting in line to take care of that land. And these generations of these men are literally turning combines and tractors on at four in the morning in Kansas while I'm sleeping in Reno, I have no idea that this stuff's going on because I think I'm tired because I went to a concert the night before. And I started realizing that, man, dude, I am such a freaking small speck on the spectrum of hunting and outdoors. You, when I, If I went away, <laughs> everybody's still going to go duck hunting. That's Every, right. And that's I started opening up a lot more of that of saying, dude, this, this is so engaging. This is so important in life. 
of the journey in life. And, and like you mentioned having your daughter, when I, my daughter is, is my world. Nobody knows about her, but she's my world. If I'm with her every day, every night that I'm in Reno, she doesn't let me travel much anymore. She gives me five days. You can go for five days. That's it. She's eight years old. She's like my boss now. So when you start really taking yourself out of it, like you just said, you start seeing that, man, don't worry about unlimited ducks. All, all it does, all that is, is more work for you. I could get a good meal out of three ducks for me and you, buddy. Let's just go do it. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's just, one duck. yeah, one duck. I'm, one I'm, duck. It's, it's yeah, all well, part of the story. Yeah, if you if you were to if you were to define success, well, look at like look at the version of you that you were talking about. Look at the version of me that I talked about earlier. The guy who only cared about success and how the things that I focused on, the things I was pressuring myself about. You know, you were talking about like, oh, we got to smash a limit of ducks because we have we're spending this amount of dollars on this, we're spending this amount of dollars on that. I was in the same place. I was I was worried about okay, well that that ride from the airport cost me twenty five bucks, and my hotel cost me two hundred fifty dollars. So if I get less than tenth place, I'm not gonna I'm not getting break even on this trip. That's what that's the world I was living in. But every ounce of energy that I put into those things didn't make me a better skier. You know, for you, focusing on all those things that are essentially outside your control didn't make you better at doing your job, didn't make you a better TV host or a better caller or a better shot. No, maybe worse. Maybe worse. Maybe way worse. I was in the same boat. But once I let go of all those things, I realized, okay, those are part of reality. I can't can't pretend those things aren't there. They're still there. I'm going to acknowledge them, but I'm going to let them roll off. Okay, this this trip's expensive. It is what it is. I'm going to go out there and see my heart out. I'm going to win because this trip is expensive. Instead of, instead of letting it drag me down, I let it empower me. I was like, man, I'm going to go out there today. I'm going to make this flight worth it. Yeah. Think about it. I mean, you, what you're saying is it could, I could wake up and it could be raining like crazy and I could be like, oh my gosh, I don't want to, I don't want to hunt in this. I don't want to go. And I started realizing that there's so much more that we can do during a day that the keel became less and less and less and less important. And I never wanted people to ever get that thought that, oh, you know, he's, he's a prima donna. Like he doesn't like the hunt. The hunt is so important. I love hunting. Of course. But the hunt means so much more to me than that trigger pull and, and, and the vocalizations or calling a duck or whatever. All of that means everything to me. If it didn't, I wouldn't do it. That still lights me up. But I have found everything else about it that lights me up. In case that doesn't happen, and it doesn't happen a lot of the times. I'm like, man, dude, wait till you see this fire. Wait till you hear my buddy pick the guitar around the fire night. Yeah. And you're like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, you probably don't know this about him, but he's a senior songwriter from Nashville. And he's out here hunting with us just because he loves hunting. We might not kill him, but when he plays tonight, you're going to think that we killed every duck that, came, that was around here. Yeah. And because he loves life. he loves. And I'm just saying that, that I started to see that. I started seeing it in every aspect of my life. It's like, man, just, just let go. I can't help that I butt heads with this guy. I can't help that this guy doesn't get it. I can't help that I like this guy more than this guy. I can't help that. It's just, there's there's things that are gonna happen in somebody's life to where you just have to let go of it and go, hey, I'm gonna be me. I'm gonna be my best. I'm gonna be respectful. I'm gonna have good manners. I'm gonna take care of people. I'm gonna be loving. I'm gonna live life with passion. I'm gonna be ethical. I'm gonna have morals. All of that stuff is life. That's how you live life. Yep. You gotta let go of the stuff that's out of your control, like you said. And when I did that, I was like, man, Dude, I don't care that I'm spending money up here because I'm ma- I'm making money. In my mind, I'm going, hey, I don't need to kill that duck to make money anymore. 
I don't need to do it. I don't need that. There's value outside of the gold medal or the pile of ducks or whatever it is. I I like to focus on the fact that um, you are only as good, like you're, if you're not going to be satisfied with the bad days, then the good days are only going to be marginally satisfying as well. You know, if you can't enjoy, if you can't enjoy the difficult times, then, then you're going to like the, the greatest times of your life are going to be just kind of, you're just not going to have the same level of satisfaction. But if you can learn to enjoy the, the journey and you can learn to enjoy just the small pieces, like you said, it's, it's about the story. It's about, well, what, what property are we hunting today? Oh, we're hunting farm John's property. I got access to this because I just went out and, and talked to him, met the dude and he was a really nice guy and I made a relationship with him. Now, every time I come back here, we get to spend time as two humans on, on planet earth together. And there's like, there's so much more to the story than just the, just the piles or just the gold medals. Like I was talking about earlier. And I, I love, um, reminding myself that the journey is more important than the, than the finish line for sure. I, I, yeah, and I think that if you if you think about the word adversity, and I want to get into some of the adversities that you have because there was like a four or five year period to where things weren't going your way. You would have you would you had more than tasted success. Um, it happens in life. My mom, she tasted success. Nurse practitioner, three successful kids, loving husband, um, grandkids. My dad dies. My mom's. What do I do? Adversity, struggle. What, what, what do I do to fill that void? How do I stay? How do I maintain this happiness that I've had? And some people get broken. They, they, they need help when it comes to adversity. And you want to be that person that sees adversity or you've had adversity and you adapt to it. You beat it. You pick yourself back up. And that's what I wanted to go back to what you said 20 minutes ago about in social media, you see all the success. Nobody really goes on there and goes, man, today was tough, man. You know, I just, I was in a meeting and this guy looked at me across his table and told me that I wasn't a good representation of the brand and they cut me. And, um, you know, you don't see that part of it. No. You only see the, man, look at all this gear I just got. Man, look at these new skis. Man, look at this dinner I got to have last night. Look at the picture of my steak and lobster. Yeah. I'm like, man, if I wasn't grounded by what my mom went through of being with somebody for 33 years, 33 and a half years, they're together. He dies at 54 years old. It's easy to go, man, pick yourself back up, mom. It's hard to go. Oh, dang it, mom. I I can't imagine what you're going through. I can't imagine the adversity that you're going through, the loneliness, the fright, the fright, the fear, what you have inside of your soul right now. When you start to really break down life and you start to understand that that happens and people are going to go through things at different times in their life, you have to be understanding that you never know what somebody's going through. You look at the career of David Wise and you're like, dude, this guy is freaking unreal. Hot wife, two badass kids, every gold medal that's ever been made in a freaking gold medal meal. But there's been times in your life to where you got knocked on your ass. And that's the secret is like, how do you get that message across to somebody in a non in, in a way to where they're like, well, if he can do it, I can do it. Like it's hard. It's that's easy to say you, you've, you could have very easily given it up. Absolutely. So between like, between like 
I think it was 2014 and 2018, you went through some shit to where it was injuries and it was meant, you had to have that middle strength. Tell me a little bit about how, how do you adapt? How do you get through those tough parts in life? Because we're all going to face them. Yep. We're all going to fail. If you don't fail, Michael Jordan said it best. <laughs> the only way to succeed is because I failed all the time. You know, more than anybody else. ever. I've failed more yeah. than I got cut more than anybody. Yeah. It's it, like you said, it's, it's not about if adversity is going to come. It's about when. Yeah. You know, you can ride you can ride the gravy train for a long time, but eventually that train's going to pull into the station, and you're going to have to get sat on the struggle bus. You know, and and for me, yeah, it came after what was supposed to be the greatest win of my career, an Olympic gold medal, and you know, then I went into a, an era of my life of just pure, straight up losing. You know. Um, we had our second kid in the fall and my wife had some postpartum depression. And so she was struggling personally and she had a hard time supporting me being gone all the time, which is my job and always has been my job. But she and I, we had, we had hard times as a couple. And at the same time, I'm trying to manage when, when I just had one, when we just had one kid, uh, I would just bring him with me. You know, they, they were, my, my little girl was the, was the travel mascot. She would go along to all the competitions then all of a sudden we have, we have two kids, one toddler, one newborn, and he was always getting sick and he was keeping me up at night. And my wife was struggling with this travel journey, this grind, and we're, we're facing all these challenges. So we had, so we kind of had to, we had to assess and we had to realize, okay, probably taking the family on the road isn't going to work for me anymore because I have to sleep at night if I'm going to compete against the best in the world tomorrow. So, you know, we, we had, we had some struggles to overcome just personally between us. And then, um, the next fall, my wife's dad died and then her grandmother died. My grandmother died. Some people around us died during that time was when, uh, my sister was hit by a boat and lost her leg. You know, my sister, my older sister, Chrissy, who, uh, was always my adventure buddy. Like she was the one who was willing to jump off stuff with me or go do silly things. And all of a sudden her life changed forever. You know, she's, she doesn't have a knee anymore. She does not going to be able to, even if we get her back skiing, she's never going to be able to ski at the level that she skied before. And all of this adversity happened sort of all at once when it rains, it pours. And ironically, um, I look back on that time in my life and on paper, people will tell you that was the worst time in my life. They're like, like, man, that was the hardest time. I, I would, I would agree that it was the hardest time in my life, but I would never describe it as the worst time in my life. My wife and I look back at that time and we're like, man, those were some of our best years together because everybody's going to have your back when you're winning. Everybody's going to have your back when you're staying on top of the podium and you're, and you're fun to be around. But you learn when you're at the low points, who really has your back. You learn who is truly on your side for you, not for what you can do for them. And so I got to learn through that, that adversity that, wow, I have so much. And going into 2017, 18 season, getting ready for my second Olympics, I was aware that if I never won another competition in my life, I was rich beyond measure. I have, like you said, I have a hot wife. I have, I've won plenty of things, but those things aren't that valuable. I have two amazing kids and no matter what I do with the rest of my life, I am trying to set those two kids up for success in their life. And 
So all of a sudden the pressure was off. And, and that's why when I went into the crazy Olympics where my skis came off two runs in a row and I landed my third run, that's why I was able to land that third run. Because I was, I had been through, I had been through the most adversity. I'd been through more adversity than I ever thought possible. I'd been through harder times than I ever thought I would go through. And I had gotten out the other side and I realized those things didn't manage to kill me yet. I guess this this tough situation I'm in right now isn't going to kill me. So you didn't go on that first run when the skis come off. You didn't go, oh, God, here we go again. If, if it rains, it's pouring still. And and I just went through the four, the, what people consider like the four worst years of my life. And now here I am representing America again on top of this half pipe dropping in. I won the gold medal four years ago. Now I'm... It just I just went through the worst time. These guys, all these people died in my family. Me and my wife struggled as a couple. And now you're like, oh my gosh, my skis came off. How much worse can you get? No, you didn't say that. No. You're like, get, get me back up there. What's next? Yeah, yeah. what's next? What's next? I, I, I sort of had a, a whimsical approach to it. It's like, all right, well, that didn't go good. <laughs> Hopefully this next one goes better. And then it didn't. And I was like, all right, well, I hope the third one, whew, you know, we cranked it. My, my ski tech plant, we cranked those vines up as high as they could go. My feet were coming off before my, before my skis did on that last run. And you know, that whimsical approach really helped me. It was like, you know, having been through what I'd been through with my wife, I realized she would stand by me and raise our kids in a castle or in a cardboard box. Well, that's a cool analogy. You know, if, if, if you know somebody's going to stand by you no matter what, it gives you freedom. It gives you, you don't have pressure anymore. You just, you just have opportunities. So we, uh, yeah, that's, that's where I was going into that third run. I, I, I tell the joke all the time. Like I, I really was wondering what was going to come next. What was the next piece of adversity I was going to face? But it wasn't like a, a stress circumstance. Like, Oh, what's next? What's going to beat me down next? It was more like, what else am I going to have to overcome today? I've overcome a lot already and I'm still here. What else? Dude, I love, I mean, I started writing that down right there and I'm like, man, what a freaking unbelievable analogy on life that is. I'm, gonna, I'm just telling you right now, I'm going to get your permission first, but I'm going to give those, that slogan, that words that you just said to me, I'm going to give them to one of my friends in Nashville and that's going to become a song, dude. All right. She's going to love me in a castle or a cardboard box. You think about what we just talked about for the last hour and a half or whatever it's been, you that's what life is. <laughs> sometimes it's a castle. Sometimes it's a cardboard box. Yeah. And if you can't enjoy the cardboard box, then the castle's going to be worthless to you. Yeah. Joy, joy isn't joy isn't a product of circumstances. That's what that's what Hollywood tells us. Hollywood tells you if you have enough, then you can be happy. If you have a hot enough wife, then you can be happy. If your kids are successful enough, then you can be happy. If you have a big enough house or a nice enough car or a big enough truck then you can be happy. But if you're not happy with your beat up truck along the way, when you have that nice truck, you're going to be dissatisfied with some other piece of it. You know, if you can't learn to enjoy the little pieces, the beauty that you have along the way, then, then, then everything you ever desire is still going to have a taint to it. So, um, yeah, I've just learned to, I've, I've learned through those three years of struggle. Wow. I still got I still got more than I ever hoped to. I still have so much. And um, it's cool for me to sit down and do hunting podcasts because hunting was a huge part of that journey for me. Because during the three years of the least success uh, on seas I ever had, 
I had some of the most success with my bow I could ever imagine. You know, I shot three bull elk on public land with my bow. I shot the biggest mule deer I had ever seen with my bow. You know, all this cool, amazing success hunting was kind of coincided with some of the least amount, with some of the worst competitive years of my career. And so the hunting actually, you know, enjoying the journey on the, on the hunting side of things was part of what enabled me to, to get past the difficulty that I was having on seeds. like, well, I, at the end of the day, even if I don't win a contest this year, I still get to go out and hunt deer in the, in the, in the late summer. They eat a backstrap. Yeah. It's, it's isn't, it all, isn't it amazing how therapeutic hunting is? It's, it's everything. You don't have, you don't have to be, you don't have to be the best at it. It's just like, I, I, I told you before we started this, when I showed you that picture of Jake Young, it's like the therapy in a duck blind is so important in life. And when you talk to antis, everybody wants to talk about, well, you know, we put so much money into this and our hunters pay for this and we do, and that's an important part of it. But the therapy and the therapeutic part of hunting and the mental, um, the mentality that you have to be to be a hunter or what it teaches you, what it gives you, is so important to anybody's life. And if anybody ever got a little taste of that, they'd be like, man, that really was, that was so rewarding. Yep. The, the, the keel is such a little part of that little, little tiny part of that. And the conversations, the stories, just that being out there is I've had guys tell me like when my, I've had soldiers say when my boots touch American soil again, the first two things that I want to do is family in the woods. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, there's another song. family. (laughs) It's already been taken by Bill Jordan pretty much. But the, the whole, the whole mental capacity that hunting gives you as a whole, is what brought you back probably not the only thing That's hard. Be, be, because you, you stay positive. You're like, man, I'm having success over here. I'm still going to train hard. You're not going to beat me just because I've lost again. And that, that, that mentality in life is harder. Again, it's harder to get there in, in your mind than it is, you know, just to say it, it's, it's easier said than done. A lot of, a lot of it. And this, if you have the approach that we talked about from the beginning of this conversation to where we're at right now, I think that those pieces that you're going to start keep putting together through your life are going to give you the ability to go, I don't care if I'm in the castle today or in the cardboard box today, I'm still going to rock it. Yep. I'm I still going to rock it. What I do. When people see my cardboard box, they're going to think Robin Leach is getting ready to do an interview with this deal, right? Because it's going to be so badass. The entrance, it's going to have a reinforced roof. I'm still going to make sure the foundation is there. There's going to be a place in there where you're going to go and hear a joke. You might hear a sad song. You might get a good meal, but my cardboard box is going to give you everything that that castle is. It's just not going to look as good for the time being. That's the whole mentality that I've always tried to, not always, but that I've realized in my life. What I was searching for is like, I'm hunting the hunt. I'm hunting the memories. I'm hunting the story, the the journey, whatever you call it. I, I really was so happy when I'm like, man, Dude, I don't care if we get them today or not. I'm just glad y'all are here. Do I want to get them just so y'all have some good pictures and, and, a, and a good story to tell? Yeah, I'd, I'd like us to have some success on the hunt. Of course we do. But people, you, you soon realize, they're like, we're not here to kill them, man. We want to. We're going to have fun doing it. But there's going to be a lot of other good memories that come out of this. And that, that whole mentality, that whole analogy you just said, I don't know if you've said that before. That's a badass analogy. So you're going to get songwriting credit on that if it, when it goes number one. Now, David Wise and his Wikipedia, you have to add songwriter to it. <laughs> there you go. But that's cool, man. That's just a, that, that, that whole four-year period when you're falling on your ass on the ski slopes, you're on top of the world with your elk hunts and your deer hunt, and nobody knows it. Yep. Nobody needs to know it because you're fulfilled. It's for the soul. You're fulfilled. Yeah. It was for the soul. 
that's what life is. And it's, 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 um, I don't know, man, two time Olympic gold medalist, six time grand prix champion, six world cups, three time X game gold medal. Only the second guy to do that in a row. Is that, what is the, what is the feat that you accomplished there? There was one, you said his name earlier of a skier that did oh, it before. Yeah, Tanner. Tanner. Tanner had done it before you in the half pipe mm-hmm. and you won three gold medals in a row. Did the X games happen every year? Yeah. So for three years you went up there and smoked. I was on a hot streak. You were on a hot streak. What, what's interesting about that story, we're talking about adversity. Um, what, what you don't know when you read that off the paper is that there was, I had an ACL injury in the middle of it. So, um, I was talking about how my daughter was born and I won my first one, my first X Games gold medal. And then I won it again the next year, right in the, in the spring, almost as, as, as far towards the end of the season as you could get and still potentially be back the next season. I blew my knee, had ACL reconstruction surgery and eight months later, the X Games comes around again. And anybody who's a football fan knows that's, that's pretty tight turnaround for an ACL. And everybody told me I couldn't do it. They told me I couldn't pull it off. But because I had, it was my second knee surgery. It was my second knee injury. I'd been through it before. I knew, I knew how my body felt. And I was like, look, man, I'm healed. The doctor says my ACL is 100% healed. I feel strong. I'm going to come back out here and do it. And that was my third X Games gold medal in a row. So yeah, even, even the highlights have adversity in the middle of them. They, they, you, they are highlights because of the adversity in some sense. Wow. So you went from a knee, a broken knee pretty much to winning uh, the biggest event priest at that time, the biggest event priest. When, when you, what is the, I want to get into some like tech technicalities of what you do, just so people have an understanding. When you drop into a half pipe, the top of it is like the most vertical part of the brand, of the of the pipe, right? Yep. Is that one hundred percent vert to where it's straight up and down? Uh, no. So, if you think about it, just like on a jump, you're always as a skier, if you're hitting a jump, you're always popping. You're popping off the takeoff. That's what we call it. It's um, it's essentially just jumping off the end. So um, the half pipe is just short of vertical because if it was completely vertical that would leave no room for you to actually jump at the top. So it's like 80, 87 to 89 degrees, depending on who's cutting it that day. Um, so we have a couple degrees as a skier of what I'm supposed to add on my takeoff to keep me in the half. And so if you ever hear the term, just to give you guys a little bit of a layman's uh, insight into the sport, uh, if you're ever watching a, a ski competition and you hear somebody say the term oververt, that means that uh, the person who's cutting the pipe has cut it and made it a little too steep at the top, which which will naturally make the skiers and snowboarders land towards the bottom of the transition. We call it landing deep or landing towards the, towards the gut. That would be an oververt half pipe. An undervert half pipe would be somewhere in the 86 to 87 degree range where with my strength, I can't actually pop hard enough to stay in the half pipe. And if you're skiing an undervert half pipe, you have a tendency to land on the deck or the top of the half pipe, which is 22 feet above the floor. So, 22 feet. That was my yeah. next question. So you think about when I was a kid, I was obsessed with skating. I was Palin Peralta, Bones Brigade. I mean, I was Steve Caballero and Mike McGill on the street side to Tony Hawk to, you know, Christian Hasoy wasn't part of Bones Brigade, but he'd come over from Hawaii and he'd win the big air contest every year. He'd get 10, 11 feet in the air, which I think I don't even know what they're doing now, but they're on one board. 
and then transitioned into like Terry Kidwell and Sean Minishred Palmer and all of the guys up on the mountain were on the snow on the skateboard on snow now and they're in a half pipe and they're doing backsides and they're doing McTwists and they're doing all of the things that the skaters were doing yeah you can't really picture a skater or, I mean I guess you could picture a roller skater in a half pipe I don't know if they do that but you got two skis now and you got two legs. Now it's almost like you're not goofy footage. You're not standing standard foot side to side. You're straight down into that half pipe on like you're on a ski hill. It just seems like the approach to it is like you, you things can get so out of whack in a hurry. It seems skis get crossed. They hit each other and they, and they knock you off course and you wreck the, the whole approach to it or the, the control of your core being in shape, your training, you look at your body and the way you're built, you can tell you're an athlete, but you're also big. You're 185 pounds at six foot seems really big to me to be on two skis. How fast are you going and are you big for this sport? And do you, did you ever get told like, dude, you better like take up something else. You look like a football player as opposed to a freestyle skier. Yes. Uh, here's a little back. Here's a little backstory for you. Um, I was a super late bloomer and I mentioned I played football and baseball growing up. And um, in high school, I played, I was on the football team. I was on the baseball team and I was tiny. I mean, I was the smallest kid on both teams. Uh, I think when I was a freshman, I was five foot one and just shy of hundred pounds, maybe just over hundred pounds. And, and so, but I, but I've always had a heart of lying. I've always been the kid who wasn't going to, who wasn't going to let you tell me what I could or couldn't do. I was going to show you what I could do. And so, man, I would go out there and I would smash myself as hard as I could against these big old dudes playing football. And it was actually the football coach, uh, the head football coach who told me, listen, Dave, you're probably not built for this sport, man. Like I hear, I hear you're doing pretty good on the skiing thing. That might be where you want to focus your attention. And now I'm, I'm on the opposite end of the spectrum. I'm six, 195 pounds. And people look at me and they're like, man, you're not quite built like a skier. And for me, six, one, 195, one, I mean, I try to get to 190. That's the target weight. If I can, if I'm really lean, really strong, 190 is good. And that for me is really light because I, I do I have, a, I have a linebacker's build now. And once I hit puberty and grew, all of a sudden, like putting on muscle was just a breeze for me. I, I eat high protein diet, I lift a couple weights, and I put on five pounds of muscle. And so, 195, if 190 is like it's hard work, I have to, I'm, I'm always trying to be as strong as I can possibly be. But if I'm not careful about how I get strong, then I'll be strong and heavy. And the last thing I want to do is be strong and heavy because when I'm coming down from 18, 20 feet in the air onto a vertical wall, I don't want, I don't want to have more weight to handle than I, than I, than I can. Um, so I'm always mountain biking and, and trail running simultaneously with the strength training. So I'm being as strong as I can, but also as lean and as light as I can. It's, it's kind of a balance, but because of my body type, um, I think I've, I've stumbled into a, a version of hard work that I never would have if I had the perfect that body type. If I was going to sit here on, on a computer and craft the ideal skier, I would make somebody who's, you know, 5'9 to 5'10, 165, 170, and, and really kind of a little bit stocky, strong, big joints, but not, not 6'1, 195. So, but because I'm so naturally big, 
I also have to work twice as hard because I have extra weight coming towards the ground. So if I'm going to be coming down with the same from the same height as everybody else, but with 30% more volume, there's 30% more of me hitting the ground hard. I'm going to have to be stronger than those other dudes because, because of what I'm carrying around. So it's given me this, this, I, this aspect of hard work that nobody else, nobody else needed, nobody else stumbled into because they weren't, they weren't dealing with what I was dealing with. So, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not the ideal body type, but it's another part of my journey. It's another thing. Well, it's, it takes just as much strength to get up. I mean, you've got to get that weight up in the air, too. So to get up there and then to do the, the contortionist activities that you're doing once you're in midair, it takes an ungodly amount of strength. Yep. So so you, what's interesting is if you take my sport in ideal circumstances, then the dudes, because of my strength, I'm, I'm even with the other guys. Um, but as soon as you add a little bit of adverse conditions, say you add a, a, a 25 mile an hour crosswind or potentially a headwind, or maybe there's a little bit of fresh snow in the half pipe, all of a sudden, this even footing that we started with puts me way in the lead because I have 30% more volume, I have 30% more mass, and I can, I can, I'm getting pushed around 30% less by the wind or sounds like what your sounds like what your sister does the yeah. bigger the plane the less turbulence right. when you get into those strong headwinds or yeah. something i mean it makes sense so as, as far as like the physicality or the, the the makeup of the body you 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 have the advantage in some instances in some but, instances i have a huge advantage and in other instances i have a disadvantage i have to spend more time in the gym than Straight up, they can they can spend more time training on skis than I can because they have less body mass. Yes. I have more body mass. I have to be really short and specific about how I train because all those landings, no matter how strong I am, those landings take a toll on your body. So I can only handle so much in one day, and then I know if I do any more than this, I'm gonna be sore tomorrow. Those guys can get away with a little bit more. They can spend a little bit more time and a half on skis that I have to spend in the gym staying strong. So. In some aspects, I have a disadvantage, but then when it comes to bad weather contests, all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, okay, this was all work because here I have an advantage. So when, you, when you're dropping in, are you padded up? Are you, you got shoulder pads on, girdle pads, you got pads, you got knee pads. Is there anything that protects your body or is it just a regular, is there a vest like a bull rider would wear if you do come back and, and experience hard impact or something? Or is it just a regular ski jacket and bib? Yeah, it's, so it's a balance between... Um, Protecting yourself and at the same time having freedom of motion that you need. A lot of guys will wear a back protector. I always wear a helmet. I've had a, I've had a fair few concussions over the years. Um, but I, I wear very little uh, protective gear because the, most of the protective gear that I've got my hands on has been limiting mobility-wise. And at the end of the day, I'm going to crash more if I can't move than I am if I'm protecting myself from crashing. And that kind of comes down to a mentality thing too. I approach each run as if I'm going to stomp it. I don't say to myself, oh, I need to wear more gear in case I crash. I say, I'm not going to crash today. Uh, and it's just a mental, a mental strength that I come, that I come from. Does that mean I never crash? Absolutely not. I crash all the time. But I don't approach it in fear of the crash. Um, if I, that being said, if I found a piece of gear that would protect me, would protect my shoulders and collarbones or knees, that I could wear without it limiting what I can do on a pair of skis, I would absolutely wear it. I just haven't found one yet. So yeah, for me, it's a helmet and normal ski gear. How important is audio when you're 
when you do what you do. Does anybody ever put a pair of headphones in and, and listen to music while they're doing that? It seems like you would want to be Rocky Balboa, like, you know, eye of the tiger and they're dropping in, or do you have to keep your mind clear and, and, or do you have a radio uh, a headphone in there where you're listening to your coach? Is there any audio part of it? Or are you just, are you just listening to the, the ski shred the snow? Yeah, audio is a huge part of it. And I would say that I'm in the minority when it comes to, uh, I don't listen to music when I ski. I, it, it comes down to part of the, the mental, the way I approach skiing mentally is that I want to be as tied to reality as I possibly can be. Uh, and what music does, you're talking about Rocky Balboa, like getting pumped up, getting excited, like using music as an emotional drive. Uh, it's super powerful. And I'm not saying I don't ever ski with music. Some days when I'm having a rough day practicing, I'll throw my headphones in and I'll just vibe out and I'll be like, okay, yeah, I'm ready. But most of the time when I'm competing, I want to be as tied to reality as I can be. I want to be like, yeah, there is a crowd here. I can hear them. There is like, I'm, I'm here to put on a show for the people. And I like hearing the sounds of the crowd. I like hearing the sounds my skis make when I take off. Other guys that I compete against could not ski without music. So it's it's different for everybody. Personally, I enjoy I enjoy hearing the sound. That's I cool. Enjoy being a part of it because I feel like for me, embracing the fact that I'm competing was important. Whereas the other guys, they're trying, they're almost trying to convince themselves. It's almost a detachment from reality. They're like, I'm not competing. I'm just listening to my music and this me and the half pipe. It's it's all good. I'm, I was the opposite. I'd be like, No, I'm I'm competing. This is the X game. This, 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 what if that's because you're a hunter? Like you like to hear nature sounds and the natural aspect of the mountain. And, yeah, and, and if I turn my music up too loud and I can't hear what's going on around me, I, I get uncomfortable. And I think that that does. I wonder if you put in headphones and have like audio sounds of bugling elk or <laughs> mallard ducks, maybe, or, that's uh, or maybe some goose <laughs> sounds or something. You know what's cool to me is like you, you were talking like 2018, which is a year ago. You won the Olympic gold. Well, just last week you won what? You, everybody check out David's Instagram. You'll see it. But last week you won another one. World Cup. Yeah. From Calgary. You won a World Cup last week in 2019 again. And it is, is it get boring at all? Does the half pipe get boring? And, and you have that, that monster emblem on your hat and they're, they're a big time crossover, crossover iconic brand now owned by coca-cola um everywhere probably the biggest energy drink in the world i think they took over red bull is the biggest most distributed energy drink in the world and they, they they're in a lot of different areas of athletics extreme sports mma with your with your passion for competition your success in competition the way you're built your strength six foot one 195 pounds that can easily get to 210 215 are we going to see you get in the octagon? Are you a fighter? Are you going to get on a motorcycle and go to the Nitro Circus with Pastrana and, and do these flips that you do on skis? Are you going to turn that into a motorcycle? Are you going to do the long... Is there any uh, like aspirations to like take this mentality? Because I, can't, I don't even know what else I can do. I know you want the perfect run. You've had a lot of perfect runs, David. Maybe you haven't had perfect runs, but you've had a lot of gold medal runs. Is there any aspirations to cross over into anything? That's a, that's a really good question. I think if I, uh, there's aspects of the, of the mixed martial arts that, that appeal to me, but I've frankly had too many concussions to get into that game. Um, but I am fascinated with um, finding the limitations of my body, of my, um, of my mind, of, of who I am. What can I do? What else can I do? with what I've been given. 
And um, <clears throat> just this last summer, you guys can check us out on my YouTube channel as well, Mr. Dave Wise. Um, I pulled off a mountain uh, back on a mountain bike. I've been mountain biking recreationally and, and as part of my training, uh, crossover training for a lot of years. And every time I would hit jumps on a bike, I was like, man, it's super cool to do a backflip on a bike. And that was, that was as far as it went. But, but I said it to myself enough times that I added it to my bucket list. I was like, all right, backflip on a mountain bike. I think I can pull that off. And then this past summer, um, I was talking to a buddy of mine, Kings, and, and he's a professional mountain biker. And I was like, hey, man, what do you think? You think I can pull off a backflip? And he was just like, absolutely, of course. Of course you can. Let's do it. And so him giving him and him having that confidence in me made it a reality. I was like, all right, not only can I do it, I'm going to do it. And you guys can watch the YouTube video. I definitely crashed a couple times along the way. It wasn't easy, but I pulled it off. And I, so now that I, I tell people all the time, I'm like, I, I've accomplished so many things that I've set out to accomplish that I almost have, it's almost been detrimental in the fact that now I'm addicted to it. I'm like, what else can I accomplish? Like what other things can I, can I pull off? Uh, I'm not gonna go out there and start trying to do more action sports. My, I beat my body up enough as it is. I'm not gonna get on a dirt bike and start throwing backwards on a dirt bike. Well, I bet you that makes your wife happy. Yeah, <laughs> she yeah exactly. She's, uh, she's, she doesn't like watching me hit the ground very hard. But um, another thing that I'm launching this summer is uh, I'm gonna make a run a professional target archer. And I'm not, I don't wanna sound cocky when I say that. Because it does sound cocky. No, it doesn't. Me, me I, just, I get what you're saying. Me just saying that I want to be a professional target archer to some people sounds cocky. But the reality is I love archery. It's For me, it's meditation. It's it's uh, it's just stillness. It's quieting your heart rate down, holding steady, executing the shot well. I love that aspect of archery. And it's such a mental sport that I'm like, man, I have worked so hard to, to and I've, and I've done so much to gain the mental uh, fortitude that I have, it would be wasteful to not use it for something else. But you have to use it to compete. You have, like you have, doesn't some part of you say, man, it's so enriched in my soul. It's so breathtaking and therapeutic to pull that bow back. Isn't it good enough just to go in your backyard and make the perfect shot? Absolutely. Absolutely. Then why go compete? Why not? Why not? But why? Because Can you not get enough of this adrenaline junkie run in life to where you're like, man, I'm fine. I'm good. I'm going to be able to walk away from competition and I'm going to go enjoy archery to where I don't, or are you so mentally tough that you just know you're going to walk into an archery competition? You're like, man, this is still therapy to me. This is still so soulful that I get to go and make that perfect shot. Whether I win or not, I'm going to give it my best. You go right back to that, that foundation that we discussed in the beginning. That's, that's where, what it comes down to for me is that I, it's a, it's a hypothesis I'm testing because I've proven that I'm mentally strong on the pair of skis, but does that make me mentally strong as a human? Or does that just mean I'm the men, most mentally strong half pipe skier? You know, I'm curious. But at the end of the day, I want to test that theory. Is my mental fortitude, which is exceptional in the world of half-pipe skiing, is it exceptional in the world of archery as well? That's badass. So now you're not breaking it down as, are you the best athlete out there? You're breaking it down as if your mental approach and your aptitude with your brain is the same in skiing as it could be in archery. Just like if, oh, I've built this brand. 
started this company and tasted success. Now I'm going to go over here and start a restaurant and see if my mental aptitude or my patience or my business sense or my entrepreneurial spirit that I have inside my body and soul is going to help me drive another brand and another business success. Yep. It's the same approach in life. Same approach. Same approach. If I go out there and I fail at it, I'll almost be, I won't be surprised for one thing and I'll almost be glad. I'll be like, all right, you archers are way better than me. You guys told me you were because I mean anybody I brought this up to is like oh no you got to be you got to have been shooting for X number of years and I'm like all right I'm gonna try to prove you wrong that's that's my goal here is to prove you wrong in that but if I go out there and I totally fail and I can't make it as an archer then I'll be then I'll be pleasantly surprised but I I want to find out. I want to find out what's going to happen. And you don't give a shit if somebody goes, I told you so. doesn't matter. No, doesn't doesn't like, matter. Good on you. You did tell me so. Good yeah, for you. Good for I, you. I hope if so. that's the best thing you do in life is told me so, then that's fine. But yeah. I really wanted to test my mental capacity on archery because when you, when people look at people, I mean, I watched Nick Munt, you know, the bone collector guy. I watched him shoot in this archery competition. Just a, wasn't sanctioned. It was just a little fun deal they did down at a real tree camp in Georgia two summers ago. And he was like going up against some badasses and he was so relaxed and so like keen in on what he was trying to do. He was having fun. He was smiling and laughing in between each shot, getting on camera and still being the Nick Month that you've seen on Bone Collector with the Billy Bob teeth in and being funny and jovial and all that. And then you get up there and just smoke your ass and you're like, dude, he's not stressed. He's not worried. He's just having fun. And it's, think about that on that small scale of that Georgia target archery shoot it's what we've been talking about the whole day is like hey he just let it all go he's like i'm just here to have fun yeah I, I don't i didn't even know about this competition this isn't even my bow i haven't even yeah. shot this bow before you know yeah of course i want to win this thing <laughs> yeah i'm gonna give it my i'm gonna give it everything i have but if i don't i'm not gonna be it's not gonna define my success or failure so yeah that's that's my that's the whole thing with the archery thing i'm just gonna I'm going to give it a go, see what happens. Now, is that going to take you away from your family and make you travel to competitions? Is that going to cause a problem? It's all about us. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be a full-time target archer. Uh, I'm going to do, I'm going to pick and choose in the same way that I pick and choose for hunting. Um, I do quite a bit of hunting these days too. Uh, it's part of, actually part of my journey as an athlete is that I prefer and almost need to be eating game protein. Like I've, I've learned over the years from, like um, making me hungry thinking about else trying trying out many different diets uh i have I've, i mean and, and part maybe maybe i found this with bias in some ways but um i perform best on a high on a high game protein diet so at the end of the day i tell you badass hey baby i love you but we gotta have elk in the freezer for me to do well on skis and she she is like was a little skeptical of that at first and then i i've shown i've shown it to her over the years and um both my kids are like they don't they don't really know what beef tastes like because good for me game and uh yeah i got to do i actually this this past month of the season has been fueled almost exclusively by goose because i got to go out there Cole and logan holtz some buddies of mine in the on the front range near denver and we got to shoot a bunch of geese and all of a sudden i was like oh this is a new form of game protein that i don't eat very often or haven't eaten very often but man when I eat this stuff, I feel good. And most people don't like Canada goose. If you yeah. don't want to cook it, you could kill you gotta it. Cook it right. You got to cook it right. You have to. When you do, it's it can be so awesome. good. It can be awesome. So, 
Tell me a little bit about that. Scotty Lego used to do that with me. He would go up to the X Games in February up in Aspen or up on the mountain somewhere. And then he would come down off of the – he would come down into the front range of Colorado, which is where the Rockies drop off. And you start heading east towards Kansas, and it's just flat. All of a sudden, yeah. just, the mountains are gone. But when you turn around when you turn around and look to the west, that backdrop is amazing when you're in Fort Collins or Loveland. And then you mix that with the amount of Canada geese and the sounds and the vocalizations and the audio aspect of those Canada geese. You're like – I hear a highway, but I also hear all these Canada geese. It's, and so it's, just, it's, yeah. it's, it's a trip. And you're like, look at all these freaking geese that are around that part of the Platte River in that front range. You know, you have like Cheyenne, Wyoming, and you come down the I-25 corridor south towards Denver. And that entire stretch, you can even go south of that a little bit into the west to the mountains, into the east towards Denver International Airport. And you're freaking throttled with Canada geese. So it's amazing. Geese. So yeah. tell me about it. It was a snowy. Yeah, we had, I mean, I had three different days where I went out and, and different conditions each time. But um, ironically, I, I wouldn't have described until as, it, as I stand today, as I sit here in this chair on this podcast with you, I'm a waterfowl hunter. If you had asked me that two months ago, I would have said, no. You're a big game because, hunter. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big game hunter because the, the, the reward is so large. Well, if I go out there with my bone and bring home an elk, I'm feeding my family for a year. And at the same time, I think you you naturally gravitate towards the things you're successful at in some aspects. I've always been a pretty good big game hunter because I'm because I'm relentless. I will walk until my legs fall off, and if that's how far I have to walk to shoot an elk and I have to carry the elk out, I'll do it. I'm willing, and so I've, I've, that mentality has has translated to some some success in the big game world. Whereas my waterfowl hunting has always been pretty subpar. I mean, I've had a couple good days. I've I've done it a lot. And I've always been a more successful chucker hunter than I ever was uh, at waterfowl. So I would have, I would have said, if you had asked me a month ago, two months ago, are you a waterfowl hunter? I'd say, oh, sure, I'll give it a shot. But I wouldn't consider myself one. But now after having hunted geese in the front range a couple of times, I'm like, yeah, anytime, any place, I'll meet you there. And, and, if it, and um, so we, we went out for the first day, my buddy Derek, Logan, and I, and we set up and I was like, okay, well, this is probably going to be like most of my other waterfowl hunts where we call a couple things and we might give a couple chances. And, uh, they were, they, they knew up, up until this point, I had only shot a Canada goose with my bow. I had done, I had never decoyed, called in a goose and shot it with a shotgun. I had spot and stock a few on the river with my bow. And so they, they said, okay, the first bird that comes in, especially with the solo, nobody else is shooting. We're like, Dave, take the first one. And, you know, I, I thought that was a really cool, respectable thing for them to do for me as their friend. And, and um, so just, you know, I think hunting sometimes, there's almost a spirit about hunting. Like it just works out. Sometimes it just works out. Not almost. Not almost. No, there is. It, there is. There's a spirit about hunting. First, first goose that comes in is a single and he closes, comes cupped in right into the decoys and everybody's just like, and, and my buddy Logan, who's the column, is like, all right, Dave, kill him. I popped up one shot, knocked, knocked the bird out of the sky. And I, uh, you guys can check it out. The, that video is on my YouTube channel as well, uh, under the wise off the grid portion. And I just turned him up to the turn of them. I was like, one for one, my record will never get better. <laughs> never will. And that's how, that's how goose hunting started for me. We, we landed out that day. And then I went out with, uh, the, 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 the week after. So that was before X games. Then I went to X games, competed, did well, won a silver medal and came back, uh, and was just doing some training in, up in Breckenridge. 
and uh, got to do a second hunt, this time with Rob from Deer, Deer Meat for Dinner. Uh, and we uh, had another amazing day. And I sealed the deal, we shot, we shot our, our limit as well. Not that that really matters, but the last bird of the day, I was the only guy sitting anywhere close to a gun. We're all pulling decoys and we're like, all right, you know, what are we gonna do? Sit here for another hour to get one more bird. Like we've had a great hunt, that's good, let's pull. But just as Derek was walking away, he was like, yeah, watch this. We're all going to get out there in the field and start pulling decoys and one more group's going to come in. And, and he, like that, that caught my attention just enough that I was still pulling decoys. I wasn't sitting in the blind waiting, but I was pulling all the decoys close to where my gun was. And uh, one more group comes in. I'm like, gosh, guys, get down. Everybody hits their belly, you know, puts their hands up over their head, pretending like we're not there. And these birds flared way far out because everybody's out of their blind. But I was like, I don't know. Sometimes you just know. Sometimes you know when you have a shot. I had one shell on my gun. Like I hadn't, I hadn't put two more shells in because I wasn't expecting to shoot. Again. And I had one shot. I, I drew on these these birds at seventy five, nah, 60, sixty yards, at least sixty yards, and smoked them. One shot. One one bird goes down, and Logan goes and picks it up. And he's like, "Oh my gosh, it's a quill!" And you know, a quill lake goose, uh, super rare. These guys that I was hunting with have hunted a whole lot of years, and neither of them had ever shot a quill. So it was the first time they they were there for a quill being shot. That was the last bird of our limit that day. So if you have two days of success like that, you're you're, you're hooked. It you're is. Hooked. You're absolutely hooked. And you have a picture of that quill with the silver medal from the X Games that you had brought on that hunt. Yeah, you have. We're going to put that up on the on the website to promote this podcast. But what a week. I mean, a yeah. silver medal in the X Games and then two successful Canada goose two hunts. great goose hunts. And then I, I was able to fuel that entire Colorado trip by eating goose protein. And I felt good. I felt healthy. I felt strong. I went out one more time and we shot um, We shot a few less birds, but they were all graves. We got nine graves. And the amount of, oh, man, look at that. That is cool. We killed four of them that week in Saskatchewan. Those wow, four. those are cool. Is, oh, that's Alberta. I'm sorry. That's Alberta. Yeah. Isn't that? That's so cool. Go along with what you're saying, so, but I thought you'd want to see was, that. Yeah. The, my third, so my third hunt, my third of three goose hunts, successful goose hunts I've been on, we shot a few less birds, um, but they were all graders. So, uh, you know, just the quantity of goose meat that I was able to bring home all of a sudden, because that's always been my argument. When people ask me why I'm not as into waterfowl hunting as I am into big game hunting, I've always said, oh, well, the reward is so much greater. I can fuel myself off you know, big game a lot easier than I can off waterfowl meat. But um, I'm, I'm on the way towards conversion because I was able to fuel a whole, a whole month and a half long skiing expedition based on almost exclusively goose meat. So it's pretty cool. How cool is that? I'll give you some recipes that we've had some success with on Canada geese. I love them. Speckle bellies. You got to go on a speckle belly hunt with me down here in the Butte Sink or somewhere around Chico and kill 10 10 a day. You talk about meat in your freezer. Um, the speckle belly is easily my favorite goose. I love eating duck a lot more, but if you take time, if you take the time and you really pride yourself in being what I call the provider and you can go out and live off of the land and, and, and go get an elk with a bow or go on a successful goose hunt and then butcher it and process it and prepare it and cook it and season it the right ways and take pride and love and passion in that. And then seeing the looks of my daughter literally will say, I'll go, what do you want for dinner? I want Dave. I want duck. Mm-hmm. I want Uncle Dave's duck. Dave Stanley's a good friend of mine. I don't know if he used to own the Reno fly shop, John David Stanley and his sister Katie, you know, all of them through Remy, I'm sure. 
Remy introduced Mike to my cousin Christy, who they're now married, yeah. and he was part of the, the relationship. Katie Stanley is getting ready to to marry her husband Carl. They're getting married in Montana pretty soon, but all. Um, if you take the time to prepare the meat the right way, man, it's unbelievable. It's so it's in, yeah. People, you'll never tell me that a buffalo or, a, or or beef is better than elk. You just you'll never persuade. Yeah. And what I love about, like I was talking to Remy about, is what like Joe Rogan's doing with all of his elk meat and showing people like this isn't farm raised. This is as organic as you can get, man. It's as, right? as, it as good as it gets. So, man, kudos to you on a career, dude, and and what a freaking accomplishment to do what you've done on the mountain, both in the in the in the half pipe and with your bow and with your family and with you know making your your dad's got to be so freaking proud man that's my boy that's my freaking boy like you 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 are winning competitions that only a judge can say i think he's the best today you're not up against the clock you're not doing it somebody has to tell you that you're you you feel it inside this is the best i got this is the best routine I got for you today, and I hope you like it. Yeah. It's, everything's out on the table, and the judges are like, oh, yeah, we like it. Oh, yeah, we like it. Oh, oh, by the way, we like it again, David. Oh, yeah, here's another bit. It's like it's a cool concept, but you got the right approach, bro. You are kicking ass in life because you get it. You have the right mentality. You treat people the right way. You treat your body the right way. You aren't afraid to have fun, but you aren't afraid to find that balance either, and that's so that's important. About it's about balance, man. So. I appreciate you. What I would what I, what I would like to do is is I would like to get you and Lego and Remy and myself and some of our crew and let's get on a hunt and then let's get on the mountain together and watch you watch you do your thing. Watch Lego do his thing on a snowboard because he's had um, he's won an Olympic bronze. He's won the he's won the X Games silver twice. He's had some success on the snowboard. He's a badass, and you know Scotty Remy is a freaking uh, the best you can get when it comes to hunting. Yep. His mentality in life and his approach to the mountains is amazing. So let's get together. Let's live in your shoes for one day. Let's go live in my shoes, which are your shoes too. And I want to. I just it's the 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 crossover, the different walks of life that come together because of this. I would have never fathomed in a million years. That when I started hunting on TV or trying to build Bandit or starting Bandit and with all the help that we've had doing it and the foul life in these brands that one day I would get to go and have dinner with George Brett. I grew up watching George Brett win the World Series in 85 and being my, he was the best hitter in the world to me. Mm-hmm. And now he's a friend. I get to text him and I'm like, that's cool. People are like, you're texting George Brett. I'm like, yeah, I'm not a name dropper. He's just my buddy. We both love hunting. We both love barbecuing. We just took a liking to each other, but I would have never met him if it wasn't for a mallard duck. Yeah. And the the approach, having the right approach about, man, I enjoy life. It doesn't stop in the duck blind, man. It doesn't stop. I'm going to talk about this lifestyle and my passion for it wherever I go. It doesn't wear me out. I'm more excited today. At 44 years old, I'm more excited today about going duck hunting this coming October than I was last year. That's awesome. And that's what I love about it. It's not about, man, I can't wait. I do love the vision of Malaga. I love it. I get it. It gets me off. But I'm sitting there going, dude, I, I was just with my boys from Saskatchewan and Nashville last week, Grant Kuypers and Barkley Fisher. And we were like, dude, Nashville's awesome. I can't wait till October. I can't wait till October. But I still like that journey from right now in February to when I get to Saskatchewan and Alberta in October. I still got a lot of cool things to do, experiences with my family and my daughter and my friends and my and my Traeger grill and cutting up meat and living life, maybe a couple concerts and maybe a couple plays and my daughter's volleyball practice and all this stuff. And I'm like, I don't take any of it for granted. All of it is part of this freaking journey that I'm on. 
And for the net, and, and you're living the same thing. You're net, you get to do some badass shit before you do some more badass shit on the half pipe. Yeah, it's bad. It's awesome, dude. So, man, to to be able to to be 28 years old and the accomplishments that you have, they don't come easy. I don't want people to think that you just wake up and roll out of bed and you're going to have that success. You got to work hard. Yes, it's all. Put them in. It's all comes. Every reward comes with a cost. And you just got to pay those costs every day. In the theme of this freaking episode, I'm going back to it, dude. Castle or the cardboard box. I love it. I'm calling him as soon as I get off. I'm going to say which songwriter right now. I'll tell you when we get off the air. But, dude, that's so badass. I don't care if I'm in a castle or a cardboard box. I'm going to have the right approach. Yeah. Best ski movie of all time, go. Ooh. Session 1242. Okay, now Comedy. Best ski comedy. Is there one out there? Like, is, oh. is, is, is uh, there's some ski movies out there that have made me really laugh. But my best, the, I'd say the best ski scene of all time is probably is probably Dumb and Dumber. The entire time they're on the lodge and Aspen there. But Better Off Dead. What is it? Ski I was cool. I was gonna say uh, Dumb and Dumber was actually kind of a good comedy ski movie. I'd go uh, Aspen Extreme or something. One of the old school. One of the old school ones. Yeah. What what is the name of the guy that used to bring the ski movies all the time to like the Pioneer Center? Formula. Were you into that? Were you ever in any of his yeah, movies? You I was were. In one. Yep. You were in one. One of the things on my bucket list was like I'd love to be in Warren Miller. I pulled that off uh, 2015. Yeah. So if if you were going to put in some headphones and you were going to listen to a song, is there one that sticks out? Are you outlaw country? Are you old school country? Did you yeah, grow up on I'm, classic rock? What do you got? So I have. I guess, I think everybody secretly deep down has really weird music taste. Like, you have the things that you tell people you listen to, and then you have the things that you actually want to listen to. Like my AZE record on the wall. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you might hear some old school hip hop, you might hear some, you know, some Tupac, some old Eminem, but you also will probably hear quite a bit of bluegrass. I'm a big Willie Nelson, Johnny Cash, the Highwaymen fan. Nice. Uh, I'm not real into modern day country. Uh, a couple guys I like, but, but um, I really like, I'm actually learning to play the banjo right now. Ooh, a little boxcar really and Ricky Scabs. I a little travel banjo because I wanted to to I wanted to keep growing. And I've I've grown pretty I've grown myself as an athlete quite a bit, but I haven't necessarily uh, fostered the artistic side that much. So I bought a banjo. I was like, all right, I this thing everywhere I go. And if I took the effort to travel with it, it means I'm gonna practice it. I actually ironically practice the banjo more when I'm traveling than I do when I'm home because when I'm home, I don't feel like I earned it. But when I sit there at the end of the day after a long day skiing and I see that banjo sitting in the case over in the corner, I'm like, man, I put that thing on the dang airplane. I'm going to practice. Yeah, let's go. Cool. Uh, so, yeah, bluegrass. Yeah, a little bit of everything. I'm the same way. I went up. Bill Burr, the comedian, I, I don't know if you listen yeah. to Bill. He's, he, to me, he's like the best comedian going now. One of the best of all time with the way he writes his stand up, but he's a drummer. Mm. And he's given me this motivation because I love drumming and it's given, my dad was a drummer. It's given me the motivation when I can slow down a little bit because consistency and practice is everything. Yeah. And I got to get to the point to where I'm around at the same area enough to, to be, cons- I can't just bring a drum kit on the road. I could go rent one every place I go, but that's not fathomable either. So and I want to, I want to play the harmonica. Goose calling is made me like want to be a saxophonist in the clarinet. Yeah, it's, a it's, it's a woodwind it's instrument, pretty much. True. You don't have your mouth on the wood that you do like on a predator call. But if we're going to do a little bit of calling today before you leave, mm-hmm. I just think that um, that musical crossover into game calling and everything is so killer. And I love the percussion part in the beat of life and just mm-hmm. and doing. 
and what ducks do. It's like percussion. It's like the baseline. It's like, it makes everything of painting that picture. Everybody's like, quit comparing duck calling to Guns N' Roses. And I'm like, dude, it is. You got your lead vocalist and your percussionist section and you got your background singers and you got freaking, you got all this, you got your slash over here. If you paint your picture the way that you like it, it's up to you, man. Just go do your thing. Yep. That's what duck hunting is to me, man. It's a freaking music festival. I'm out there just enjoying the sights and the sounds and the smells and the camaraderie and the high fives. And all of that is just my approach to life. That's my puzzle. And I'm putting it together the way I want. My pieces might be different than yours. So much of calling is, is uh, instinctual too. Oh, timing you know, is everything. Like people, everybody's like, everybody wants to, and I understand why they do this. People want to break it down to a science. They want to make it understandable. How do I get those ducks to close? How do you do that so well? And there's an aspect of it that you can't really explain. It's just you're in the moment. You're, you're feeling it from your soul. And you're communicating that to the, duck, to the ducks and they're coming. And that's how Dude, you just said it perfect. If, if duck hunters, and you barely have waterfowl hunting, if duck hunters would listen to what you just said and you call with your love and passion, it's like when people hear me talk in a public speaking deal or in a, in a negotiation, they're like, oh, dang, dude, you got a lot of passion for what you're doing. I'm like, is there any other way to live? I don't, I'm not going to go through the moment. When I call ducks, people are like, damn it, boy. It's not that you're calling too much, you're calling too loud, which I've had the tendency to do before, but I want those ducks in the air to be like, whoa. I'm going to miss this seminar, man. I got to get down there and check this out. And that's, dude, that's it. The passion of the hunt, the compassion and the heart of a hunter and the passion of the hunt is all that matters when it comes to the outdoors. If you're a hunter. I've had some success on the calling side uh, with elk hunting for the same reason. Not because I'm good at it. You know, an an elk call, blowing a diaphragm is, is similar in difficulty to blowing a goose call. If you're not good at it. It's, it's going to be a struggle. But I just went out there and I was like, look, I'm going to try. I'm going to try to communicate this message that I have and communicate it from the soul. And you get them to respond. They're, they're, I love hearing that, dude. Yeah. That's so cool you're, that you realize you know, that. Man, when they come in, it's like, oh. that's, so that aspect of waterfowl hunting is certainly why I'm hooked now because I've, I've seen that's what hooked me. My, my buddies let me, they're like, all right, Dave, we're going to let you be the only caller on this group. And see what they do, and I turn them around. You know, I, I let them do the, the closing call, but we're I, going. I got we're going. To turn. We're going. And once I got them to turn to what I was saying, obviously the decoy spreads out there. It wasn't solely on me, but when I got their attention and they didn't run away scared because I called so poorly, I was like, "Wow, all right, this, this is cool. Isn't it the best? It's so good." Yeah. I, I, let's do another one. Let's let's do another podcast in, in a couple months or something, and, and let's just stay in touch on the calling part of it and see what we can both teach each other because I love talking calling with passionate people that get it, that understand voice and inflection and, and negotiation and what you're really trying to do instead of being like, well, this is a feeder chuckle and this is your greeter and do the timing and the instincts and reading that body language. When I see a duck do this and I'm going to do this, I'm like, "Mm -hmm, that's right. You know, I don't, and you just, you, you learn that through trial and error and trial, you know, and, and going and, and, you got to go. You can't just go to the park and listen to live birds and understand the sound of them. You have to go and read them in a hunting natural situation. So let's do another one. Until then, two YouTube, two YouTube playlists and channels. It's Mr. David Wise. Yep. And then in the second one is Wise Off the Grid. Wise Off the Grid. W-I-S-E off the grid. David Wise. Mr. David Wise on Instagram. 
not that you need to just get so in depth in this guy's life, but check him out. Google his ass and look at what he's done on the ski slopes with his family. You can see short videos of him, like what he, on what he just said on his YouTube channels. We're going to do a lot more together. You're going to see him on some upcoming episodes of the foul life that we're going to get with Remy Warren and my boy, Scotty Lego, who's all the way across the country in New Hampshire, at his home with his beautiful wife. We're going to get together. We're going to get in the mountains. We're going to get on the rivers. We're going to get in the duck blind. Who knows where it's going to take us. But for one reason or the other, we got brought together. We always say this life ain't for everybody. His might not be, mine might not be, yours might not be for us. But I'm telling you, that's what life's all about. Be loving, be passionate, go about it the right way, and everything's going to come together. Just know that approach and don't be chasing that gold medal all the time. The next thing you know, you're going to be on top of that podium with the American National Anthem playing behind you. Congratulations, brother. Any closing words? Oh, thanks for having me on, man. It's uh, I was reflecting while you were talking about all these different dudes you've been in the blind with. And I realized that we as outdoors people may live in different realms, but we're all cut from the same cloth. And that's what makes us all oh, that's what makes that's what makes the journey uh, so fun and interesting. So and that's, that's me on. Thank you for being here. And that's been the foundation of Banda, dude. The band of brothers. Thank you all for joining us. This life ain't for everybody. For David Wise, I'm Chad Building. What I want to do right now is I, I can't leave this podcast without saying I don't like talking about sponsors that much, but this podcast has been brought to you by the Bone Collector North American Whitetail Championships. You're going to be hearing a lot about this guy. Go on and uh, guys, I meant go and girls, go on, investigate it, get signed up. It's going to be awesome. My boy, Clint, I love you, brother. Thanks for letting us be a part of it. It's also brought to you by Deemer Box and our friends at Mountain Ops. Check them all out on the online guys or on their Instagram pages, Deemer Box and Mountain Ops. For Mr. David Wise, I'm Chad Belding, Tom Rashishin. Please do the thing and play what you can do when the money's all gone by our boy, Lee Lofton. And don't forget, guys, it doesn't matter if it's a castle or a cardboard box. Find that approach. Thank you all. And as usual, I want to send a big thank you out to all the support that we've been getting here at the podcast. Uh, remember, today's episode was brought to you by our friends at the Bone Collector North American Whitetail Championships. Go to the website, nawtc.com or bonecollector.com. Get signed up. Get the details. It's only $300, like I said before at the beginning of this podcast, to get signed up. But... As soon as you sign up, you get a package that's worth over $500 in Tacticam, Gator Cooler Tumblers, Broadheads, a, a ton of different things that are going to accessorize your bow, guys. You can't go wrong. It's the North American Whitetail Championships brought to you by Michael Waddell and the Bone Collector Crew. 14 regions across America and Canada. There's two ways to get involved, through qualification and the actual championship. And when you get the details, you're going to be like, man, this is a no-brainer. It's going to be fun. It's ethical. It's great for the sport. And it's going to bring deer hunters around the country and Canada together. We're going to unite and make this one for the ages and for many years to come. So again, thank you, North American Whitetail Championships, for supporting This Life Ain't For Everybody podcast. I'm Chad Belden. Can't wait to see y'all out in the field.